Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Gannon Stauk was born on September 29th, 2009 to his mother, Landon Bullard, and his father, Eugene Albert Stauk, who was always known as Al. Gannon was born prematurely and weighed just one pound, six ounces. Within hours of his delivery, Al and Landon were told that there was just a 10% chance that he would survive. But Gannon was a fighter, and despite the odds being stacked against him, he not only survived, he thrived. Gannon grew into an adventurous boy who equally enjoyed the outdoors and playing video games. Three years after Gannon was born, he was joined by a little sister, Lena. By then, Al was a member of the National Guard, while Landon was the primary caregiver for the two children. It might have seemed like the Stout family was living the American dream, but just like so many military families, Al's deployments and time away from home began to take a toll on the relationship. Landon complained that Al didn't take enough responsibility for the children, and she felt like a single mother, while Al saw it as his duty to provide for the family even if it was from afar. By the time Gannon was attending school, his parents separated and eventually divorced. At first, Gannon and Lena spent most of the time with their mother. They lived with her, she took them to school, and she went to after-school activities with them. When Al wasn't deployed, they would spend weekends at his place, but the visits were inconsistent and at times disruptive to the children's routine. And then Al met Letitia. Letitia Harden was born on August 4, 1983. She met Al in early 2014 when they were both members of a co-ed baseball team in South Carolina. At the time, Letitia had just come out of the other side of a divorce and had her teenage daughter Harley in her care. Naturally, the pair bonded over their shared challenges of parenting through a separation. Letitia worked as a special education school teacher in the Horry County school system. To Al, she appeared to be the perfect match. A loving mother, a dedicated teacher, and a steady force for his children during a turbulent time. In January of 2015, less than a year after that first meeting, Al and Letitia were married in a small ceremony. Apart from a new wife, not much changed in Al's life over the next couple of years. He continued to be deployed with the National Guard while his wife and his stepdaughter were at home playing happy family. He still saw his children intermittently on the weekends, and despite applying for an increase in custody now that he had a steady partner who could care for the children, his applications were denied. But that changed somewhere along the way when Landon's mental health began to decline. 
She began drinking to excess and entered into relationships which put her children's safety at risk. Eventually, Al was successful in appealing for full custody of the children with visitation for Landon. By then, he was living with Letitia in Colorado Springs, more than 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers away from his ex-wife in South Carolina. Initially, when Gannon and Lena moved in with Al, Letitia, and Harley, things went smoothly. Sure, they missed their mother, but they loved having a big sister and more time with their father. By then, Gannon had become more interested in sports, much to Al's delight, and the pair spent many hours playing catch and watching games together. It should have been the beginning of a new chapter for everyone. Finally, Al had his family together, and the children had the safety and stability they deserved. Except that's exactly the opposite of what happened, and for 11-year-old Gannon, the move to Colorado Springs marked the beginning of the final chapter of his life. This is Monsters. At around 6.55 p.m. on January 27, 2020, Letitia called 911 to report her stepson missing. The emergency operator told Letitia she needed to call the El Paso County non-emergency line for that type of situation. I would play the 911 call, but it all sounds like this. Between 334 and he was supposed to be back home at 6. So we let up all the time, like go to the neighbor's house, house they ride bikes, do everything together. No. Or G-Man, but that's kind of like something we're going to call in, but not friends. You'd think in 2020, cell phone technology or emergency services recording technology, or a combination of both, would be a little better than this, but it isn't. So I can only work with what I have. Letitia had spoken to an operator a few minutes later and told them that Gannon had gone out to play with friends and was expected home an hour earlier, but she hadn't been able to locate him. She called the parents of Gannon's friends, but they didn't know where he was either, and none of her neighbors had seen him. Three hours after the 911 call, two officers arrived at the home at 6627 Mandon Drive in Colorado Springs to carry out an initial search and gather more information about the missing child. I took the covers that he was laying down, like head, and I just like threw it on there because I got my uh, daughter out and the dogs out. She was working, and it was it was something. Yeah, everybody It was something that we were just like. Yeah. Did he take his bike? No. Okay, so, okay, because somebody saw a little kid on a bike. They posted it, but I didn't know if he brought it. Well, he did, unless he took it sooner and brought it back because Lena ends up getting the bike. Okay. And yeah, rides the bike because hers had broke. When she ran into him, I say ran into him as in not not physically, right. but she sw somehow got his bike because hers wouldn't work. Okay. So he could have at so one point. So they were here. Okay. Yeah. They were supposed to go what pick him up for dinner. Okay. Blue and, and black. Deputies looked through the home but found no sign of Gannon or of any disturbance to indicate what might have happened to him or where he had gone. When their initial look through the home was complete, they spoke to Letitia to find out exactly what had happened. How long have you guys lived here? Five minutes, five minutes, five minutes. Uh, maybe like a year and something now. Okay. 
Yeah. And you, you have talked to all of his friends' parents in the area? I, I'm not the person that talks to the friends. I don't have numbers. I don't say yes. I don't say no. My husband tells me yes or no. So he has all the numbers. So there could be some friends that you don't know. Right. Because I, I just don't, I don't know the people like that. And a lot of the time that I was here, I had to had a job on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. So I had to fly back and forth for a lot. So I didn't really meet a lot of people, you know, like my husband did. And he's like, always want to be the one to talk to everybody about it. And so, well, how about your husband? Has he yeah. talked to these people? Yeah, he's been on the phone with a bunch of them. He's in Oklahoma, Fort Steele right now. Is there, um, is there anybody he hasn't been able to get a hold of? No, he said he's talked to everyone that he knows of. Um, the only concern we had is that he was talking about the friend with the older sibling. Mm -hmm. We don't know who that one is. That's the one we don't know. Do you guys have a name for that? Because person? That we, I don't, we don't know who that that person is. We've never heard him say like specific name. And my husband said when we talked to him today that there was no like um, specific name for. But he didn't give him a name. He just told him no. So. And he took his his game console bill. Yeah, they have a couple of different consoles. And one of them's gone. Switch, Switch Lite. They have a 2DS, a 3DS. One of them's gone. It was in a, like a, like a bluish black. Wait, no. That one might be in red. I don't remember. I just know in the video you can see that, or the picture that the lady had, you can see like the, like he's got something right here and it's like far down. Which picture is this? So some lady online had noticed it, like, like messaged us and had noticed that that was uh, him or the description. And she was like, was that him? And I was like, yes. Where, where was that picture taken? Um, I don't know. I, got, I honestly have about 150 Facebook messages that I haven't answered people on because you guys showed Was it local? I mean, was it in the yes, Lorsen Ranch? Yes, in Lorsen Ranch. Someone put it on the Lorsen Ranch page. And so a lot of people just kept sending messages, information. First, someone said they saw him get in a white SUV. Then someone said they saw, they caught it on the camera. They were all supposed to be sending this to me. But as I was talking to all these people on Facebook, because my husband gave the neighbor permission to post it, mm -hmm. um, you guys came and I kept having alerts there. So now I'm not going to like, mm -hmm. you know. Letitia explained she was Gannon's stepmother and that his father was deployed with the National Guard at the time. She told the officers that Gannon had stayed home from school that morning because he had an upset stomach from the night before. At around 3.15, she let him go out to play with his friends at a local park. When he didn't return home a couple of hours later, she began to worry. After talking to neighbors and calling the parents of Gannon's friends, she sent her 17-year-old daughter out to look for him at the local park where he often played. Then, she dropped a bombshell. She wasn't really worried he had gone missing. She believed it was much more likely he had run away. That's because she found Gannon's phone in his room with a recent search for, Can my parents find my cell phone if it's off? She also told them that his most valued possession, a Nintendo Switch, was missing, which indicated he had planned to run away before he left to play with his friends. After taking the follow-up statement from Letitia, a missing persons investigation was initiated and a tip line was established. The following morning, Gannon's disappearance was featured on the news and across social media and tips began pouring in while volunteers from across the neighborhood were taking to the streets to search for the missing boy. 
By then, Letitia had called Al to tell him that Gannon was missing and he rushed home early from his deployment to help search for his son. At first, the tip-offs were mostly about apparent sightings or dodgy neighbors who may or may not be involved, but two emails caught the attention of investigators. Both appeared to be ransom notes demanding Bitcoin in exchange for Gannon's safe return. The IP addresses of the emails were tracked down and were found to be sent from overseas. Ultimately, the tips were determined to be fraudulent and no further ransom notes were ever received. It wouldn't take long for officials to suspect that a kidnapping and ransom would have been preferable to what really happened to Gannon Stauk. It was immediately clear to officers that Letitia knew more about the disappearance of her stepson than she was letting on. Her story had gaps which she didn't have an explanation for, or rather, the level of detail she did have was more suspicious than if she had just kept her mouth shut for a minute. Here's the audio of a conversation she had with an officer the day after Gannon disappeared. I'm, I'm almost positive he is with someone that he knows mm -hmm. because he searched on his phone, can my parents find me if my iPhone is, or if my phone is off. Mm -hmm. um, he also, and I'll let you look at this, sent my husband some crazy stuff that was like, um, it was like, um, so he sent my husband a message that says, do we have any bath salt? And then my husband said, for a while, ask me. And then, because my husband didn't think, you know, like what he was talking about. And it says, my friend said, if I get some, we could play. And he has a Sonic there mm -hmm. this weekend. Because he's big into like Nintendo Sonic. Yeah, right. And then my husband said, no. So then he said, can we play today if my tummy stops hurting? And so my husband said, we call him. Then he said, his brother has a car for a sleepover this Friday. So that's why we were trying to find some of the kids that we knew, how, well, we didn't know, other people. That had older siblings, so the, that's how the whole thing got started with this Jimmy kid. We feel bad, but we didn't start that. Right. <laughs> so they, everybody goes pounding on this Jimmy kid's house and looking for, you know, people at Gaffling. Right. And uh, the kid was asleep, and, and he didn't have an old, older sibling, so yeah. it kind of got, you know how social media gets yeah. blown all out of proportion yeah. like that. So... Yeah, so that's pretty much what we got. And then, um, oh, and we did, uh, my husband was like, go through your his book bag and stuff like that. We found like a CR mm -hmm. in there. It was like, I guess a CR. Has any used the marijuana that you know about? No. Notice her positive and enthusiastic tone of voice as well as the amount of detail she adds to the story. Investigators definitely noticed. They were also trying to make contact with Letitia to schedule a formal follow-up interview and find out more about Gannon's movements before he was last seen. But she only seemed to answer her phone or reply to text messages occasionally and without any urgency. When they suggested they would come to visit Letitia at home, she said she didn't want officers coming to the house. At 10.45 p.m. that night, she sent a text message to one detective that read, quote, What do you want from me? Because I have nothing. One of your very own linked me to what your guys were doing. I did nothing and or am being set up. I'm not really even sure other than that being told by another blue with El Paso. I was told I couldn't go home to sleep, and on top of that, men were sent to a home with a minor female, and she was forced to stay there, not even leave for food. Every conversation I can hear inside, what do you want from me? 
Everyone knows that the first 48 hours after a person goes missing are the most critical in determining if that person would be found alive. But Letitia seemed unfazed and non-committal about giving the detectives any more to go on than she had already provided. What she didn't realize was that even though she had only provided very limited info, it had already proved to be inconsistent. Her story of the lead-up to Gannon going missing had changed several times in the span of less than 48 hours. Initially, she said Gannon had been out with friends and had missed his curfew. She had also told the 911 operator that she had spoken to the parents of his friends and had gone out to see if her neighbors had seen Gannon. But when investigators got involved, she was unable to provide the location of a single home she had gone to. She didn't know the names of the friends Gannon had supposedly been hanging out with that day, and therefore she had never spoken to any of the parents during the time she was apparently desperately searching for him. Letitia had willingly allowed responding officers into her home the night of the disappearance, but by the following morning she was reluctant to allow anyone inside, and she insisted that if officers wanted to talk to her, she would only meet them at the station rather than the very location where Gannon was last seen. When officers did turn up at the house, they noticed that Letitia's vehicle, which had been parked in the garage the previous night, was nowhere to be found. She refused to indicate where it was located, and Al, who had just returned from his deployment, didn't seem to know where it was either. All in all, Letitia's behavior as the primary witness and last person to see Gannon didn't add up to a concerned stepmother who was desperate to find her child. It seemed more like someone with something to hide. Eventually, the detectives scheduled the interview anyway, and they set a time for Letitia to come to the station in downtown Colorado Springs on January 29th at 10 a.m., two days after Gannon was last seen. But 10 a.m. came and went, with no sign of the leading witness. Investigators were already having doubts about Letitia, and her absence only amplified their concerns. At 12 p.m. that day, two hours later than planned, she walked into the station ready for her interview. So ready, in fact, that she brought notes. Way to be organized. What she had to say differed so far from what she initially told responding officers after her 911 call that they might as well have been talking about a completely different case. So there was smoke coming up through the basement. So the basement has... So if you walk down the basement, there's a sofa and stuff over here. It was coming up through the basement. So I, like, run back up the stairs, go grab Lane, and luckily, my point telling you about her being not a rough sleeper, she woke right up. So she wrote back up, and I, and I like, almost, like, grabbed her, and I was like, get up, get up, get up, get up. I said, I gave her the keys. I said, can you go, I don't remember the exact order, but I said something along the lines of, can you go take the dogs to Daddy's truck and sit there and wait? Right. So I don't remember the order of how we all ran out the house, but I know that at that point I did. She ran out, and I can't remember if I ran out to make sure they got the truck or if she ran out by herself. I don't remember that part, but I do know that they were, I know that they were, had gotten in the truck. I came back inside, run back downstairs, and that's when I was trying to get Gannon because I couldn't get, I, I didn't know how to get everybody at once. So my main thing was to get the front people out, you know, and then go. So then I ran back downstairs to get Gannon. And then the fire was on the floor over here, then on the sofa. So I'm pretending this is the sofa and this is our floor. So it was right here and right here. And I saw the candle that was over here. So there was covers everywhere because the kids always get on about, they leave a lot of covers laying around all the time. I mean, there's like 10 quilts and LOLs and blankets and all this. 
So they were all right here. So I take a whole bunch of them and I go and like, like, like basically smash down on the sofa in the um, fire to put it out. So I got a, a burn and I was like, get up again and started running at that point because it wakes him up. He's alert. He's realizing that the covers and everything's on fire, the carpet's on fire, and we all go outside. So we get in Albert's truck and we drive off. And I drove off in panic because I saw that I put the fire out. So I knew that there was no, you know, like nothing wrong, like it wasn't keep going. I drove off in panic because I was like, oh my gosh, what do I do now? Like, we break the carpet, you know, we done this and this. Keanu's upset, freaking out because he's scared he's going to get in trouble and, and da 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 da. So, you know, like the whole talk was going on. So we drove maybe around the block a little bit and came right back. So we came back in and like developed a plan for the next day to figure out, honestly, we were going to face the, like, fix the carpet and try to like not say anything. And the reason for that is because like Albert freaks out about every little thing if the kids do something and I, I'm on like it's me and he'll be like you didn't do this you weren't being a good stepmom you weren't doing this you weren't doing that and so we both kind of were like a little like worried about it and he gets very like crazy like if something goes wrong so that was the plan go to sleep rest he was going to stay out of school we were going to get the carpet fixed and then go from there plus stomach was hurting Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky Lucky? In line at the deli I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office More than once actually Do I have to say? Yes you do In the car before my kids PTA meeting Really? Yes Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky I never win and tell Well there you have it, you can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com Play for free right now, are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary, void prohibited by law 18 plus, terms and conditions apply, see website for details she started the interview by telling investigators about a fire that started in the basement of the house the day before Gannon went missing. She explained that the following day she noticed that Gannon had some burns on his arms that she hadn't noticed the day before. She then told them that she left the house to get some burn cream and some supplies to fix the carpet that got damaged in the fire. Now, first it's strange that she had never mentioned the fire up until now, but it's even stranger that she spends the time talking about this when you hear what else she has to say during the interview. She spent 45 minutes speaking to investigators about a small fire and how she was going to fix the carpet and why Gannon stayed home from school and why she was worried about his burns. She was in no hurry to give any information to investigators when she first got there as she talked to them about her designer purse and what she wanted to eat and drink. She spent the first 15 minutes of the interview talking about all of the offers she had from various airlines to become a flight attendant and even that she was worried what people would think of her if she changed careers to flight attending because she had a doctorate. Letitia had repeatedly claimed to hold a doctorate from Liberty University and signed her name Dr. Stouck. It was a lot of pretty unimportant information compared to what she was about to say. The housing development they lived in was still under construction, so Letitia said she went down to one of the houses being built and found the carpet guy who agreed to go to their house and fix the carpet. She gave him the code to get into their house and then continued running errands. When they returned home, this is what Letitia claimed happened. So, as we got inside, I heard something. But I didn't think anything about it because I thought, you know, maybe 
maybe the animal was like doing something, maybe we were like doing whatever. Mm-hmm. And the guy was in there. And I gave him the code. The guy from the... Yeah, and it's all my fault. Because I gave him our code to fix the carpet. Okay. And I should have. Okay. And he... He was inside. I noticed when I had like walked in and saw, I saw our, our, we have like a little bookshelf uh, thingy. I keep my shades in there too, but uh, we also have like our guns and stuff. I I saw it was open, but in my mind I thought maybe I left my shades or whatever. Do you like sunglasses? Yeah. Okay. So I didn't think anything of it when I heard the noise and I just started walking downstairs. But I didn't walk downstairs with like a gun or anything like that. So I started walking downstairs. And when I walked downstairs, I hear something again. Well, at that point in time, Gannon was on the sofa, and I saw him. And I heard something again, and I walked on around to where the... So Gannon's room is here, okay. and there's a storage closet here. Okay. And I heard something, and so I walked to the storage closet to open the storage closet. And when I do, it's him. And he was standing in there. He had on gloves. In the storage closet? Yes. Okay. He had one of the guns. Okay. And I was terrified. Okay. So terrified. And then he just knocked me down and, and like towards Gannon's room. And he was like, he was hitting on me. It was like hard, like on the ground. And, okay. and he was trying to like rape me. And I, I told her, and she, I said, I have to tell you about this. Okay. And like, I from there on was like in a blur because I was trying so hard because Gannon had a table in his room and I like, I went back and hit my head on it. Like with him, Gannon runs inside the room mm-hmm. and like tries to like you know be helpful, do something, whatever. And from there, it was kind of like a blur. Everything else that was going on, because I was just like crying and I was freaking out. And I swear to God, I don't know what happened from there. I really don't know what has happened from there. I don't. Okay. I don't. And I'm just like in the moment thinking. I had like these memories of like wow, you know, like the thing was open, he had the gun and I, I didn't remember what happened from there and so I kinda like blacked out just a little bit. And, mm-hmm. and, and and so all these things are going through my mind as I'm blacked out. I don't know if like I know he was like when Gannon was like trying to get on him, I know he was like moving Gannon and you know, like and, and it was just all like so like a cycle to me. And so I'm like out of it for a little bit. Okay. Just for a little bit. And then, from the, from when the time I woke up, I say woke up, but like I kind of like that a little bit, and I I immediately like freaked out. I was like, I could I I was like I could I couldn't find Gannon. Mm-hmm. I was like the guy was still in the house. Lena was on the way. I didn't know where Gannon was at because I was calling for Gannon. I thought he was hiding. Like I I legit okay. thought he was hiding in like maybe the other closet that was on the other side, the other you know whatever. I thought he was hiding. Letitia said she arrived home at 2.30 p.m. and the first thing she did was disarm the security system and go into the basement. To her surprise, in the basement was a Hispanic man named Eduardo. He attacked her, held a gun to her head, and sexually assaulted her. When Lena arrived home from school at 3.15, Eduardo allowed Letitia to go upstairs and greet her. Letitia said she sent Lena outside to play so that she would be safe before she went back downstairs to the basement. That's when Eduardo sexually assaulted her again and again for the next hour. 
She claimed she didn't remember a lot about the incident, as she had hit her head and blacked out at least twice. Then he was like, he asked me to give him a, a suitcase, and I gave him a brown suitcase, and then it, he hit me on the head again, and I like, right here. He just kept, like, hitting me right there like that. Okay. And so then he did that, and then I blacked out again. Okay. I was having a panic attack. And then I don't know what happened from there. I really don't. I don't know. I just know that I, I, I did lie. I did. When they came, I did say, get a lift, whatever. You know that. But, okay. but, he, but he never did. He never left to go play. I just didn't know what to do, and I panicked in the moment. I didn't want Albert to be like, trying to hurt us, because we kind of get in a lot of fights. Oh, <laughs> and just, okay. Yeah. And I just want you to know, that's the only reason that I that I made up the lie is because I knew that I didn't want to face the consequences of, you know, trying to explain to him all that was going on because he was saying to me, you're trying to make this about you, you know, this is not about you. And, and, and I knew all those things because I've lived in it. And I, so I, I panicked and I just told a story and I was going to try to think of like, you know, a plan. I'm sorry that it might have delayed, you know, like looking for Ganon, but I do not know where Ganon was. I, I do not know. I do not know his his whereabouts from that point on, but it was still in the same time frame that I gave you guys. So that wasn't, there was no contradictory to that same time frame because it still was about four o'clock. Letitia tried to claim that she had only lied because she was afraid of Al. For some reason, she thought Al would have been angry that she was assaulted and Gannon was kidnapped. So she lied and claimed he went out to play and never came home. Right. When the assault was over, the man held a gun to Gannon's head and demanded a suitcase, so Letitia got him a brownish-colored case as well as a cardboard box. When Aguardo tried to assault her again, she hit her head and passed out. Again. She repeatedly told investigators that she had tried to fight the intruder off, but he had overpowered her and left with Gannon. That was at about the same time she claimed Gannon had gone out to play, so she said the timeline was still the same. Because there's no difference between a kid going missing outside for an unknown reason and someone physically taking them from their home as long as it happened at the same time. When investigators questioned some of Letitia's statements, she had no explanation as to why she hadn't attempted to call 911 when she went upstairs to greet Lena, or why she had waited hours to call 911 after Eduardo had abducted Gannon, or why it had taken two days to report this alleged attack. Letitia described Eduardo as a 30-year-old Hispanic male with brown eyes and brown hair, but she couldn't provide any further details about his appearance. It shouldn't have been hard to track him down since he was supposedly working on the housing development, so the building contractor should have had some idea of who he was. But I can only assume that information didn't really exist. Letitia also stated that she had cleaned up the area in the basement where the alleged assault took place. She told them that she had straightened up any signs of disturbance in Gannon's room and in the utility room. Investigators knew she had cleaned the house, but they were beginning to think that it was because of something much more sinister than a home invasion. As a result of the sexual assault claim, Letitia was offered the opportunity to have a sexual assault nurse examiner conduct a forensic examination to gather DNA. Letitia declined the examination. Letitia no doubt sensed that her far-fetched story wasn't as convincing as her notes might have made her believe. 
Towards the end of the interview, she said she wanted to leave, but the detectives wouldn't let her. They took her phone, telling her that they were applying for a warrant for it, and they had to hold on to it. She then began stuffing tissues down her pants and said she had peed a little, so a detective escorted her to the bathroom. Then she said she was having chest pain and shortness of breath. Medical assistance was immediately requested and paramedics from the fire department arrived to examine Letitia. She was transported by ambulance to the hospital for further medical attention. Detectives accompanied her on the ride during which she was unresponsive to any questions asked by the medical personnel. And yet, when they arrived at the hospital and the detectives were out of sight, Letitia appeared to have a miraculous recovery. Before she could be examined by a physician, she signed herself out of the facility while detectives sat in the neighboring room. In the intervening minutes since the interview ended and Letitia walked out of the hospital, a warrant had been signed for the collection of her DNA. However, she left the hospital without telling investigators and made a phone call from the waiting room to have a friend pick her up. To be clear, it wasn't illegal for Letitia to leave the hospital as she wasn't under arrest, but her actions compounded the suspicion of investigators that there was much more to this story than she was letting on. But even with how far-fetched the story sounded, officers had to take Letitia's statement seriously, at least until they had definitive evidence that it was true or fabricated. As a result of the interview, investigators secured search warrants for the Stauk home, their cars, and her phone. They were also granted access to Letitia's Facebook, Apple, and Google accounts, as well as her phone records, home security records, and Ring doorbell footage. By then, detectives had already canvassed the neighborhood to ask residents what they had remembered from the night of the disappearance. By chance, one of the Stouk's neighbors told officers he had a security camera which captured the front of the family's home. After reviewing the footage, they found no indication that a Hispanic male had entered the house at any time that day. The only people seen on the footage were Letitia, Gannon, Harley, and Lena. Letitia's phone records also provided some interesting context as far as the timeline of her alleged sexual assault was concerned. It indicated that during the time period of the assault, she had made an outgoing phone call and sent numerous text messages to Alan Harley regarding buying a new set of headphones for her husband. The security system sensors from inside the home indicated that the back door of the residence was opened and closed ten times during the period when the assault was allegedly taking place. They also indicated that significant activity was taking place in the basement at the time, which would be consistent with an assault like Letitia described. Detectives also spoke to the officers who first responded to the missing persons report about how Letitia appeared both physically and emotionally. They stated there was no sign of injury on her or any behavior to indicate she had recently sustained head injuries which would cause her to black out more than once. Once the information came back from the various search warrants, detectives were able to piece together a much more detailed timeline of the hours before and after Gannon was reported missing. Let's begin with the search of the house. The Stouk residence was a ranch-style family home approximately 2,500 square feet or 230 square meters in size with a two-car attached garage. There were four bedrooms and three bathrooms. Two bedrooms and a bathroom were located in the basement as well as an unfinished utility room. 
There was a staircase leading from the main level to the basement, and the garage was accessible from inside the home. The day after Gannon's disappearance, Al authorized a search of the home. The next day, investigators returned with the warrant to carry out a much more detailed examination. That time, they focused on Gannon's basement bedroom, which was the location of the alleged sexual assault. Blue Star reagent was applied to the surfaces in Gannon's bedroom, the utility room, the staircase leading into the main house, the hallway to the garage, and the garage itself. That chemical has similar properties to luminol and glows under black light when it's in contact with proteins from blood. And glow it did. All of the areas that were tested showed positive results for the likely presence of blood. Investigators followed a trail of glowing dots down the hallway and into the garage of the Stauk residence. There was an area of blood found towards the rear of the garage, right underneath where the trunk of Letitia's Volkswagen Tiguan was sitting when the responding officers searched the property the night Gannon was reported missing. But by the time the blood was found two days later, the Tiguan was gone. Letitia refused to say where it was, and Al was unable to convince his wife to share what she knew despite his desperate pleas. Sadly, the results were strongest in Gannon's bedroom, where investigators found a clear indication that something violent had taken place and recently. Forensic technicians identified blood and a lot of it. It was found so deeply soaked through the mattress that it had seeped into the carpet below, gone through the carpet pad, and stained the concrete subfloor underneath. More than 50 separate blood patterns were located on the walls and ceiling of Gannon's room. The blood on the walls and electrical outlets was smeared, which indicated it had been wiped over. Letitia had stated she cleaned up the room where the alleged assault had taken place, but she never mentioned this level of blood. A bloodstain pattern analyst and crime scene reconstructionist was asked to examine the blood spatter found on Gannon's bedroom walls. His preliminary report indicated that the stains were consistent with one or more blood spatter producing events, which could include gunshot, blunt force, or stabbing. When the blood was tested for DNA, it returned as a positive match for Gannon Stauk. Consequently, the investigation quickly pivoted into much more than a missing persons case. It was looking more and more like homicide with every additional piece of the puzzle they put together. By day three, Gannon's disappearance was changed from a missing person to an endangered person. Over the course of the investigation, the Stauk home was searched five times, with each search turning up more and more evidence of foul play. Outside of forensic evidence from the home, cell phone call data and CCTV footage made up a significant part of the evidence collected in Gannon's case. Each piece of evidence was painstakingly pieced together to provide a highly detailed timeline of events on the day of Gannon's disappearance, right through the days and weeks following. Starting with Letitia's device, detectives found that at 8.13 and 8.17 a.m. on the morning of the disappearance, Letitia took two photos on her iPhone. Each one captured Gannon sleeping peacefully, and alively, in his bed. The same one that was found drenched in blood two days later. Lying next to him was his most prized possession, a Nintendo Switch. When she was interviewed, Letitia repeatedly told officers that the fact that Nintendo was gone indicated Gannon had intended to run away as he would never have left it behind. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Letitia's phone showed no movement from 10 a.m. on January 27th until 2.45 p.m. that day, a time period that coincided with her being out of the house with Gannon. CCTV footage from neighboring properties showed Letitia exiting the property and getting into Al's Nissan at 10.16 a.m. She was accompanied by a passenger who appears to fit the description of Gannon. At 2.19 p.m., the vehicle returned to the property, although the position of the camera failed to capture if both Gannon and Letitia exited the vehicle or only Letitia. Regardless, motion detectors from the Stauk home security system showed no movement during the hours when the vehicle was away. That was corroborated by evidence showing Gannon's younger sister Lena was at school that day and his stepsister Harley was at work. The lack of any activity on Letitia's phone for the hours she was away from the house was inconsistent with her previous cell phone usage. When investigators looked at her historical screen time, they found that in any four-day period, she would spend more than 10 hours on Facebook and Facebook Messenger alone, all of which indicated that Letitia had left her phone at home on the day when she went out with Gannon. At around 10.37 a.m. on the day of the disappearance and not long after Letitia and Gannon left the house, his phone sent Harley a message which read, quote, Tisha left phone at home. If you need her, text me. An hour later, Letitia was captured on CCTV footage at a Petco store in Colorado Springs, which is located 22 miles from the Stauk home. Gannon cannot be seen in the footage. It is unclear what Letitia and Gannon did in the minutes between leaving the house and arriving at the pet store given that the drive only takes about 30 minutes. That left about an hour of time unaccounted for. There's also nothing known about what Letitia and Gannon did between leaving the pet store at 11.22 a.m. and when she was next captured on CCTV footage at 1.22 p.m. Strangely, the footage that was recorded at that time was from the same Petco store she was seen at two hours earlier. At 12.06 p.m., Al sent his son a text message saying, quote, Hey, buddy. An hour and 15 minutes later, Gannon replied, quote, Can I play Zelda at least? It was revealed during one of Letitia's interviews that Gannon had been grounded for some period of time. Al replied, quote, not today, and that was the last known phone communication Gannon had before he went missing. 20 minutes after that text message was sent, his phone's internet browser was used to search, Can my parents find my cell phone if it's off? The same search Letitia would later show to officers when she told them Gannon had run away. Letitia's phone showed no activity until 2.45 p.m., more than 25 minutes after the security system and the neighbor's CCTV registered her arriving back at the Stauk home. During that 25-minute period, the home security sensors registered movement in both the upstairs and downstairs areas of the house, but more so in the basement. At 3.15 p.m., Lena was captured on CCTV returning home from school. 
She was later interviewed by a child specialist investigator. She told them that when she got home, Letitia had told her Gannon was asleep in her bed and she could not see him. She was told to go outside and play. She fetched her bike from the garage and rode around on the driveway until Harley returned home from work an hour later. At 3.55 p.m., Al sent another, hey buddy, text to his son, but the message wasn't opened until 7.40 p.m. At 4.40 p.m., Harley returned from work, picked up Lena, and drove away from the home. Ten minutes later, Letitia texted her daughter and asked her to pick up carpet cleaner, trash bags, and baking soda. Harley did as her mother asked and returned home with the items later that evening. The receipt for those items was later found in Letitia's vehicle. With the CCTV footage and phone records showing a pretty clear timeline of events, it's important to add what investigators learned about Al's movements during that time period. Given that most violent crimes are carried out by those closest to the victim, especially when it comes to children, it's no surprise that Al would be considered a person of interest in Gannon's disappearance. So here's the sequence of events from his point of view. Al spent the night of January 25th in Denver in preparation for his early morning flight to Texas the next day. He later traveled to Oklahoma as part of his deployment with the National Guard. On the morning of the 28th, he flew back to Colorado with no idea of the size of the shitstorm he was heading into. From the minute his plane touched down on the tarmac, nothing in his life would ever be the same again. Al knew something was up as soon as he stepped out of the airport doors. First, there was no sign of Letitia, at least not in the vehicle she was meant to pick him up in. Between the couple, they had a Nissan and a Volkswagen, and if something was wrong with either of those, then Letitia would have used Harley's car to pick him up. But instead, she collected Al from the airport using a rented Kia. Earlier that morning, she had driven her Tiguan to the airport, left it in the short-term parking lot, and rented the Kia which she used to drive Al home. Naturally, when Al saw the Kia, he questioned the need for a rental vehicle. Letitia told him she didn't want to put any extra miles on her lease vehicle, which didn't really make any sense given she'd only put 71 miles on the Kia during the rental period. She refused to tell Al where her car was except to say it was parked near French Elementary School by their home. The Kia was returned the following morning on January 29, 2020. When it was later examined by investigators, blood was found in the trunk, but it was not a match for Gannon. No GPS data was recorded during the period that Letitia had rented the vehicle. After the initial questions about the rental car, Letitia and Al's conversation centered on Gannon. Al was in a state of panic, and the second he got home, he joined in on the frantic search for his beloved boy. Thankfully, he was not alone. In the hours after Gannon was reported missing, the community had rallied to find him. Churches, school groups, parents and families all headed out to look for him. Gannon's mother, Landon, arrived in Colorado Springs as more than 300 searchers scoured the roads, parks, and mountains in the area. Everyone seemed desperate to find Gannon. There was just one person conspicuously absent from the hunt. The person who had last seen him, Letitia. She intermittently disappeared into her room or drove off in her vehicle without any explanation. 
When Al told her that his ex-wife Landon would be staying with them until Gannon was found, she booked a hotel room, packed her bags, and told Harley to join her. Al was already extremely concerned about his wife's behavior, but at the forefront of his mind was getting his son home safely. Relationship issues could be sorted out after that. Except, there was not going to be a safe return, and no chance of reconciliation. Because the person he called his wife was actually a monster. The day after Al returned to Colorado, Letitia was summoned for her interview at the Colorado Springs Police Station. When Letitia sat down with investigators on January 29th, she didn't know what they had already learned about some of her movements over the prior two days, as well as looking through her phone records and reviewing the neighbor's CCTV footage. They dutifully listened to her story about Eduardo and the sexual assault, all while knowing that something didn't add up. They didn't know exactly what, but they were determined to find out. To the surprise of the detectives, Letitia showed up for the interview in her Volkswagen Tiguan. The same one that had been parked in the garage when Gannon went missing, and the one that had been conveniently missing until that moment. As soon as she set foot in the station, the vehicle was seized for a forensic examination. Investigators noted that the car was wet and the exterior appeared to have been recently cleaned. CCTV footage from a nearby car wash showed a partial view of a black SUV consistent with the Tiguan being washed at 11.30 a.m., right before Letitia arrived at the station. When the vehicle was examined by forensic investigators, they found possible traces of blood on the rear bumper and step plate of the vehicle, the rear passenger seat, the front passenger seat, and an area near the glove box. GPS data from the vehicle was also examined, which indicated that the night before the interview took place, the vehicle had been driven from the airport to a location north of Palmer Lake, which is about 47 miles or 75 kilometers northwest of the Stauk home. Unfortunately for investigators, the GPS location data was intermittent and could only be narrowed down to an area of a few hundred miles. Despite the odds, detectives ordered a significant search of the area in the hopes that they would come across something of importance in the case. Back in Colorado Springs, the media had descended on the Stauk home. On January 30th, while investigators were trawling through CCTV, phone, and GPS records in an attempt to corroborate or disprove Letitia's statements the previous day, Al and Landon held a press conference to plead for the safe return of their son. Landon was distraught and tearful as she gave her statement, quote, My kid has a life and it's important to me. It's important to everybody that's standing in this room. Gannon, Bubba, Little Man, Mom's Hero, wherever you are, Mommy and Daddy's here. And we're begging and pleading for you to come home. I can't wait until you're found because I have hope you're gonna be found. You are the reason why I have life. I don't think many people could understand my child was a one-pound, six-ounce baby. He had a 10% chance of survival. He's gifted and talented, do anything for anybody. So I'm begging and pleading, if anybody has any type of lead, put yourself in my situation. Ask yourself what you would do. Please have hope with me. I'm begging. Bring my baby home. Bubba, Mama loves you. Mama loves you so much. Al's statement followed much the same pattern as Landon's, although he also thanked volunteers and members of his community for their countless hours spent searching for his son. Through tears, he sobbed, quote, 
Daddy loves you so much. Please come home. As he finished the statement, he embraced Landon and the press conference ended. The united front shown by Al and Landon as they begged for the safe return of their son had an effect on Letitia. And so, the following day, she called her own press conference on the grass outside of her home. For ten minutes, she stood on the curb answering questions, starting with a personal introduction saying, quote, I am Tisha Stauk, which is Gannon's stepmother. When she was asked, what did you see when you last saw him, she replied, quote, Well, I'm not allowed to talk about anything with the case. Remember, Letitia's the one who called the press conference, and yet she apparently didn't want to answer any questions directly related to Gannon's disappearance. Throughout the interview, she wore dark glasses, concealed her face, and had her back turned to the camera. In contrast to Al and Landon's press conference, Letitia was unemotional throughout the interview. If anything, her tone of voice was upbeat and enthusiastic, just like during her police interview. When the questions turned to Gannon, which was the whole point of the reporters being there, Letitia only wanted to respond to the community about the rumors about her being involved. What, what did you see when you last saw him? Well, I'm not allowed to talk about anything with the case. I would more so be willing to talk about how the community needs to have faith and continue to work together and not make these false accusations, like the things that have been said that I've disappeared from the community. I haven't been there to help, but there's lots of reasons behind that. Uh, reasons like death threats, right? Right. Death threats are one of them. My family's getting lots of death threats. We counted over 20-some death threats already. Um, Two, my husband's ex-wife is living in our home, and of course I'm not coming home to do these things and to help with the family when I was kind of like told I couldn't. Um, and then many other things that happened with the El Paso County Police Department, you know, and in doing the investigation, I was told I wasn't complying. She went on to explain that the family had received over 20 death threats and said, quote, and my husband's ex-wife is living in our home, and of course, I'm not coming home to do these things and help with the family when I was kinda told I couldn't. And then many other things that happened with the El Paso County Police Department, you know, in doing investigation, I was told I wasn't complying. The reporter asked Letitia to elaborate on what she meant by that. Um, and then many other things that happened with the El Paso County Police Department, you know, and in doing the investigation, I was told I wasn't complying. And could I elaborate on that? Please do. Yes, so I asked for an attorney during the interview uh, and I was denied that by them. I was held because they were blocking the door and I was told I couldn't leave and that if I would have touched them, they would have probably, you know, said I still wasn't complying or said I was, you know, trying to run away or something. But during the interview, I asked several times, could I stop the interview? Could I get an attorney? Could I stop the interview? Could I get an attorney? I was denied. I was told I couldn't get nothing to drink. I couldn't go to the bathroom. I mean, it was continuously that my constitutional rights were violated. In fact, Letitia spent the first half of her press conference talking about how hard the situation was for her, her feelings toward the investigators, and her anger at being suspected of hiding something. It's also important to point out that Letitia did not continually ask for an attorney during her January 29th interview at the police station. When she finally got around to talking about her missing 11-year-old stepson, she stated, quote, I took care of Gannon for the last two years in our home because his mother didn't want to do it. I would never, ever, ever hurt this child. 
The discussion about Gannon was a fleeting moment, and she quickly returned to complaints about her and her daughter's treatment at the hands of the police. Letitia went on to give a lovely review of the neighborhood before saying she couldn't wait to hear all of the apologies from those who accused her of being involved in Gannon's disappearance when he was found. Yes, this is a wonderful neighborhood. We picked this neighborhood because it felt like such a great community and the school district's great. And so I really feel safe in Colorado Springs. But then the community seems to have turned. Is that true? There's a lot of times that, you know, on the ring app and things like that, we hear of like a burglary every day. And, you know, some of those things you can't always look into and think that it actually happened. You have to you have to kind of like wheedle it out. But overall, the community is really good at looking out for each other and coming together in times of need. I, I should try and clarify here, not necessarily crime rates, but the way that people are reacting online to rumors about you with the story. Oh, oh, yes. Wow. The rumors have gotten so bad. Uh, I pretty much have been told at least 10 different ways that these people have these conspiracy theories. I guess they watch a lot of law shows and maybe they have all these theories on how um, Gannon is dead. And that's what they're saying. So I'm like, why are you saying Gannon is dead? He is not dead. We are going to find Gannon. And that's the main goal that we all have, my family has. Just because you haven't seen us, we have that same goal. And we've been out searching. My aunt has been out searching. My family has been out searching. We all have been doing that together so that we could protect each other. How does it feel when not only you have a lost child who you are in care of, but then people blaming you for that child not being there? You know, I, I'm just ready for Gannon to come home. Most importantly for him to see his family. But second, I am going to be so ecstatic when I'm able to say to people that I hope they have a really sincere apology for all these theories that have came out online, for all the things they said that I have done or people have done. I just want everyone to know that we're going to find Gannon. And I love him so much. I've helped taking care of him for so long. <laughs> Don't hold your breath, Tisha. Towards the end of the interview, Letitia began to make one fatal mistake in her statement, one that any true crime fan can identify almost immediately. Can you spot it? You know, he's always helpful, and I, he was always so helpful with the dogs around the house, and we have two little cute dogs, and he was always like a person I could say, Gannon, can you go do this? And he would do it right away. You know, sometimes with kids, we have to remind them and things like that, and that's okay, but he was so sweet and able to help anyone. He could notice when you're sick and say, are you okay? And such a kind heart. Notice how initially Letitia was talking about Gannon in the present tense. He is so kind and loves to play video games. And then all of a sudden she switched to past tense. He was always so helpful with the dogs. He was always the kind of person I could say, do this. He was so sweet. Just hours after Letitia held her roadside interview and at around the same time as forensic technicians discovered the blood in Gannon's bedroom, the status of his disappearance was changed from missing to endangered. That increased the level of concern for his welfare and enabled the FBI to become involved in the investigation. By then, the sheriff's department had received 72 tips about the case and bloodhounds had been dispatched to search the rural area to the east of Colorado Springs. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. 
Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. While the FBI and local detectives trawled through CCTV footage, GPS data, and phone records, Letitia was back to her old tricks. On January 31st, she rented another vehicle, a Nissan Altima. This time, she could explain away her need for the rental car because hers was currently impounded. A few days later, the CCTV footage of Al and Letitia's home that a neighbor had handed over to the investigators was leaked to the media. That was the grainy film that showed Letitia arriving home on the afternoon of the disappearance, but with no clear indication that Gannon had returned with her. Social media came alive with accusations that Letitia had murdered Gannon while out of the house that afternoon. The following day, Landon and Al made another tearful plea for Gannon's safe return, saying, quote, 100% without a shadow of a doubt, my boy would not run away. For it to be said that he has behavioral issues and it to be blamed on him, that's what makes me sick about this. It is not Gannon's fault. He is a child. A kid doesn't just disappear and no one sees him. By then, Letitia was spending hours trawling through social media and news websites in a relentless search for any updates on the case. The combination of leaked footage and commentary from strangers on Facebook, as well as the new appeal for information from Gannon's parents, triggered another reaction from Letitia, and this time she was ready to talk about all of the details. In a long Facebook post, she stated, quote, I'm going to go ahead and say this so y'all can delete me. No desperation here, just to show how dumb people are. It is well within my soul, but I've had enough. Call it trashy, but I've had enough of the lies and threats. Most of y'all in these speculation groups are delusional. First, the neighbor sold the video for money. Then there was another one from another side that was sent in, but they haven't released that because of these wannabe detectives. It's a tactic to keep idiots busy while we find Ganon. You guys claim to come together, but have brought hate in the same sentences. Ganon's mom didn't give a shit about him or his sister. She had them at motels, abusive situations, criminal scenes with her husband, did drugs. Heck, Ganon even found her iPad with her doing drugs and we have pictures of those. Albert rescued them from guns in the back of their cars, police stops, living place to place, no home, and even had to fly on a plane from Alaska through the night to bring them back to us because she changed their schools three times and had not place to live. She sold his toys, his switch, and other items for drugs. So keep thinking that she cares and raising money. Gannon is still out there, and for those of you making all these speculations in some group are idiots. What about raising money for a reward, not supporting someone who is faking? They know exactly what was told to them, and they have followed those leads. Downing a person who has taken care of kids more than their mom is stupid. Know the facts. They don't involve someone hurting him. This is who you are putting on a pedestal while trying to bully someone else based on tasteless wannabe keyboard detectives. Do what Gannon would do, realize he needs to be home so he can be with the people who took care of him and loved him. In another post, she said the blood in the garage had come from Gannon cutting his foot on some of Al's woodworking tools. She went on to explain that she had bandaged his foot while he sat on the edge of her car in the garage, the place she had never previously parked her vehicle. 
After wrapping his foot, she said Gannon went in and out of the house using the back door so he could check the gate was latched because he was proud of being the man of the house while his father was away on deployment and he wanted to make sure everyone was safe. Conveniently, that explanation covered for why there was blood in the garage and in the vehicle, as well as the reason why the security sensors detected the back door being opened and closed ten times that evening. But the irony of her over-explanation is that as far as the public were aware, there was just the CCTV footage and her odd behavior to implicate her in the disappearance. They didn't know about the blood in the basement or the garage or the security sensors going off. She was attempting to pre-explain everything so that if anyone questioned her, she would appear innocent. She finished that post with a claim that the cops had a selfie she took in the truck that afternoon, which showed Gannon safe and well, and that they also had the description of the friend he was supposedly with when he disappeared. Let's also not forget that Letitia had told investigators that Gannon was abducted by the guy who assaulted her in the basement. So to the detective, she's saying it's an abduction, and to the public, she's saying he either ran away or was taken after going out to play with his friends. There were even more alternate versions of events when it came to what she was telling Al. There was the first story that Gannon had gone to play with friends and had run away. The second was that Eduardo sexually assaulted her and kidnapped him. The third was that a wanted felon by the name of Quincy Brown had carjacked her, sexually assaulted her, and sodomized Gannon, which explained why his blood was all over the bedroom. On February 14th, Valentine's Day, Letitia added several more versions of the events to her ever-changing list of stories. That time, she told Al that she was with Gannon on Highway 105 near Palmer Lake on January 27th. He was riding a bicycle, but then he fell off and hit his head. That's when Quincy Brown abducted them both. She only knew that guy's identity because she saw an identification card fall out of his pocket, which had his name on it. So the guy was there and was threatening you in the moment? The guy was there when the police searched the home. The guy was still there when the police searched the home? Uh, where was he at? Where was he at when they searched our house? Until I get immunity. Well, I, babe, I can't give you, I can't promise you immunity. I can't give that to you. But I, I mean, well, you can I mean, yes, I can, I can reach out to Mark and let him know that's, that's what you're looking for and that you're willing to work with somebody. And you can also tell, what's her name again? Um, Bethel. Do you can tell Bethel? Okay, but you got it. You. Okay, I I never said you did. You tired of what? What did you send that to anybody? Where's the message? Can you send me the message so I can see it? Just e if you email it to me or, or email it or text it to me so I can see it. Tisha, Tisha, who who is this? Who is the person? Do I know this guy? Do you understand? 
Is he is he there? Is he there with you? What? The FBI recorded calls between Al and Letitia. During the call, she also said that when officers responded to her 911 call, Quincy was still in the house and she tried to signal to them that she needed help. Body cam footage from the officers who responded to the missing persons report directly contradicts that statement. It's also unclear to me how Quincy Brown ended up in their house. He carjacked them and drove them back to their house? Of course, during the call, anytime Al asked for her to explain questionable parts of her story, she freaked out and accused him of not supporting her. He finally got fed up with her shit and laid all his cards on the table. Hey, I'm gonna tell you, listen, I know enough about immunity that you're not gonna get immunity if you keep lying about this fucking Quincy guy. There's no fucking Quincy guy. There's no Eduardo. There's no Uncle Matt. There's nobody. Whatever. Uh, yeah, whatever me all you want to, but there's no fucking Quincy. Yeah. Should have freaking told me about Quincy Brown from the get go. That's why there's no fucking Quincy Brown. Really? Yeah, really, Tisha. Yeah, you just. This is just blowing my mind here that you sit here and you want to be a family, the four of us and Gannon, like you say. You want us to get back together and be all intimate and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But you keep fucking lying to me. Five years of life, and now my son's gone. Where is Gannon, Tisha? Where the fuck is Gannon, Tisha? Quincy Brown. Where? Where's Quincy Brown? He's obviously, you know something about him. Is he in town? Are you in town? Is Gannon in town? Who's anywhere? Nobody knows where anybody is, except for you. The timing of Letitia providing those new details was convenient because the media had just started covering the official searches that were being carried out in the area identified from Letitia's GPS, north of Palmer Lake. It's clear she was trying to provide an alibi for why she was in the area, but by the time she had that conversation with Al, he was convinced Letitia had something to do with his son's disappearance. For at least two weeks, he had consented to all of his phone calls, text messages, and emails being recorded by investigators. On February 15th, one day after investigators listened in while Letitia told Al about her latest story, searchers made a pivotal discovery during their search off Highway 105. They found a piece of particle board that appeared to have a blood stain on it. The particle board was collected by the FBI and transported to the Metro Crime Lab on the same day. Initial testing indicated the blood was human. The following day, the blood was matched to Gannon. Sadly, despite a thorough search of the surrounding area, no further signs of Gannon's remains were found. The area near where the particle board was found was covered in 6 to 12 inches of snow. Investigators would later state they believed the wood was used as a sort of snow shovel during the disposal of Gannon's body. While the particle board was small, the discovery was huge. Aside from the blood in Gannon's bedroom, it was the most definitive indication that he was indeed a murder victim and not a missing or endangered child. On February 28, 2020, an arrest warrant was issued for Letitia Stauk. By then, she had absconded from Colorado Springs and was hiding out nearly 2,000 miles or 3,200 kilometers away in South Carolina. 
Two days later, on March 2nd, and more than a month after Gannon was last seen alive, she was finally arrested. Letitia was charged with child abuse resulting in death, tampering with a deceased human body, tampering with physical evidence, and murder in the first degree of a child under 12 or being a person in a position of trust. There was no body, but the evidence clearly indicated Gannon had come to a gruesome end at the hands of his own stepmother. The arrest took place in South Carolina, but the charges were laid in Colorado. FBI agent John Grusing interviewed Letitia at the time of her arrest at the Myrtle Beach Police Department. She seemed surprised when he mentioned her arrest, and when she asked why she was being arrested, he told her it was for the murder of Gannon Stouck. So, Gannon is murdered. That's what the evidence shows. Okay. And I'm happy to share with you evidence, but we can't have a conversation unless you're advised of your rights. Okay, what are my rights? She acted surprised to hear that they believed Gannon had been murdered, and for some reason, she knows that he isn't dead. I can help you, because what you're charging me with is not, or whoever, is not the case. Okay. Gannon is alive, okay, and I can help you. Okay, great. But see, here's the problem. When I reach out to people about getting help, I said, hey, I need someone who's going to help me to help you guys. I couldn't get that from anyone. At we all. are happy to help you. Okay. So I understand you might say you have, like, whatever evidence that you might say you have, but that is not a case. I did not hurt my child. Okay. Need more assistance besides just FBI. You're probably going to need some DEA. Probably need a lot, a lot of help. Well, okay. I'm happy to get whatever help. Okay. How do you know? But I can't help you unless people are willing to help me. And I did offer every opportunity to sit down and talk with not only my husband, but with Landon to try to come up with the best thing to do it. I really did. And I've been begging every single day, please, please, please don't say this. Okay. You, I know you're expert in your field. Okay. I know you may say you have whatever evidence you have, but it's just not true. Okay. It's not. It's not true that Gannon's dead? I'm not going to sit here and say 100%. I can tell you that there's really things that wouldn't have occurred that I can help you guys with to know that. And it leads back to some things just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Okay, that's that's the truth. Okay. That is the very truth. And every day that went by, I had to do nothing but not only protect myself, but protect my family in this, protect other people in this, and it's just, that's just what it's been. Of course, as soon as her rights are read to her, the conversation immediately turned to how she's being mistreated. Her stepson is missing, presumed dead, but she's the real victim here. You've got to get help to do that. i got to get help to give everyone what they need because I'm going to need my mom protected. Okay, I'm going to need my brother and sister protected. And most importantly, I'm going to need Harley protected. And on that same note, I'm also going to need other people in Colorado protected. And see, people say FBI can offer that protection. I can. How? How? If it involves it, an eleven-year, if it involves finding an eleven-year-old, then we can. And it means that we can have new identities. It does. Yeah. I've had to do that before. For, we call it an informant, but we can do it for. We can how do, do I it know for the general public. Who else would you trust? I don't know at this point, sir. I don't know. There's nothing that happened at any house, nothing that happened at any house that would have hurt 
harmed, murdered, done anything to anyone. Okay? Wrong place, wrong time. You were in the wrong place, or Gannon was? I was. What about Gannon? We... We all were in the wrong place. My, even my family was in the wrong place in our time. Even Lena, even Harley. Okay? There's all of us in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I oh. swear to you on that. She goes from he's missing to he was kidnapped to now claiming she and Gannon were in the wrong place at the wrong time and need federal witness protection. She is doubling down every time her lie isn't believed, thinking she might actually come up with some reasonable explanation for Gannon's disappearance. But what's really happening is that her stories are getting more and more unbelievable. With each lie, she has to go bigger, which has just gotten to a level of ridiculousness. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Agent Grusing spent about an hour and a half going through Letitia and Gannon's history. The years leading up to the disappearance and some of the details about events that happened immediately prior to Gannon's disappearance. The small fire in the carpet that had happened the day before and a hiking trip they took where Gannon had gotten sick and soiled himself. When they got to the disappearance, Letitia went back to claiming she would need protection in order to help them with the case. Agent Grusing explains that she needs to tell them what she knows, and if she requires any protection based on that, they'll give it to her. But she drags her feet, continuing to deny she hurt Gannon and that she will need protection. What you're saying to me is, what you, you think is that I hurt Gannon. That's and I don't think it was intentional. Okay, but I didn't hurt Gannon, okay? And I didn't either intentional or not intentional hurt Gannon. I did not. That's just not what happened, okay? And I had this conversation with you just to see for a second if I could get help from you. But you can, but you, how can you expect me to help you, Leticia, if you're not going to tell me what happened? Because you, you, you can't go, just so, so let me I'm tell sorry. you. You can unlock the entire resources of the FBI right now. I've told you that. But then you say that you're not willing to do it, whether you don't trust me or you think that there's these but people involved. you already involved. told me someone wasn't there based on the alarm. That's from what we can see. Yes, okay. movement in the basement, right. movement upstairs, But you've already told me that based on that, okay? But what you're not realizing is there's two sensors on that home, okay? Two. Two that can easily be manipulated, easily, Okay. And if you even knew anything about prior, you would be thinking a lot differently now. But see, that's why I can't talk to you about these things, because you already have predetermined what it you think. It doesn't matter what I you, predetermined. But you listen, said intentionally, I'm, unintentionally, and that, that's not the case. I'm not saying I'm right 100% of the time. It doesn't. You need to just disregard whatever I think, or really whatever anybody else thinks. If you have a truth... And if you have something that will help us find him, really, to hell with me and everybody else and what we think. You should just cast that aside. All we, all I can follow is the facts of the cases they're told to me. Okay. 
And so for me to go somewhere else besides the facts, I have to then go back to the facts to check it. She tried to explain to the agent that the information they got from the alarm system is not accurate. She told him that it can be manipulated and their assumption that nobody else was in the house was wrong. The agent tried relentlessly to get Letitia to even tell him where the last place she saw Gannon was, but she wouldn't. She doesn't even want to admit that anything bad happened to him. Do we know each other? No, I... Why would I care? If you didn't do it, and it helps me find Gannon? I didn't do it. Okay, well right. then help me find out who did. Who did what? That to Gannon in his Don room. Watt to, Don Watts to Gannon in his room. There's a pool of blood in the corner. Okay. That's Gannon's blood. Okay, so you're saying, now this is, this is where I have a hard time knowing what it is. You're like, okay, trust you or not, right? You're saying there's a pool of blood. Albert said saucer side look, because I'm sure you hadn't said all this, because I'm sure you were there, or whatever. Okay. In his room, and you said something about, what would you say? What, what, On the wall. Okay. Then, if that's your, your whatever, your expert advice, or There's whatever. Okay. Then, where, where do you think that I had any involvement with Gannon, and where did he go? That's where people, that's where it has to click at some point, that. And, and that's what, I listened to you do that to Al, to where you're making it. him guess what happened to Gannon. I don't want him to guess. Well, no, you, I want, well, you're, I want you're asking help. me to guess. No, 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 I was asking a question, sir. I wasn't trying to get you to guess. I was just saying, in general, asking a question. I want help with people understanding. I tried to give any insight, help, clues, anything, but I can't because they know my daughter, everyone, my family, my mom, everyone. And you can think that... But right now, Leticia, I mean, you can go down that road, but it's not going to save you in court but, because you're the last adult with me. So and nobody else... Just let me, let me try to I'm protect sorry. you. I'm not trying to hurt you here. This is actually protecting you. If you don't tell us where to go investigate, mm -hmm. then nobody's going to investigate for you. You're the last adult with me. You told a lot of lies about all these injuries. From Not to I didn't tell lies to you or to any police officer. Did a sex assault happen in the house? I didn't tell any lies to you or a police officer. Her claim that she has never lied to him or any other police officers is itself a lie. Everything she told him during this interview is a lie. Letitia will never admit that she was responsible for Gannon's death. This is like every other narcissist that I've covered who refused to admit defeat in the face of a mountain of evidence. She will continue to make up the most unbelievable shit for the rest of her life. She even laughed at the agent when he told her that her story doesn't sound like any type of drug cartel or organized crime group he's ever heard of. Basically, her story is that some criminal organization did something to Gannon, but she won't say exactly what happened or where. She argued that authorities were wrong believing that Gannon was last alive in their house. When confronted with the blood in his room, she just denied it was there. She expects investigators to believe that story, and all of the details that point to her are just a whole bunch of coincidences. Stubborn murderers seem to have the worst luck. If the evidence isn't a coincidence, according to her, it just doesn't exist. 
Because you know in here I even have what you entered in your phone. The stuff that you've entered and deleted. Like, um, blood is spurting from an arterial bleed. Direct pressure not controlling. Do I? I didn't look this up. It's from your phone. Blood is what? Spurting from an arterial bleed. No. Somebody did from your phone. I don't like my stepson. No. I don't like my stepson. Should I get a divorce? I'll stalk cheating. I'll stalk Instagram. I'll stalk cheating in Colorado Springs. Catch I'll stalk cheating. How to get blood out of sheets. Out of sheets? Mm-hmm. I want immunity. Oh, the blood out of the blood out of sheets was because we always had like always nosebleeds. If I ever looked the blood That's out of sheets, it was nosebleeds. And I, I figured it I might never, be something. I didn't ever look up anything about an artery or something unless it went from something else. It's on your phone. And I never looked up anything about my stepson unless someone else did. The, the reason I brought up gangs is you you uh, looked up. I want immunity because it was gang related. That's right. If you can't explain the evidence against you, you just look confused and deny it was you. Works every time. No, it doesn't. They came back around to Letitia claiming that Gannon is alive and that she knows who took him. She still wouldn't tell the agent out loud, but she agreed to write it down. What about the blood on the back of the cheek one? Cheek one? Mm-hmm. The only blood would have been in the back of the when we were si- we were we opened the car up. In the car we were sitting there to do his foot. There's nothing to do with it. There's too much to be. No. Uh uh-uh. uh. No. But that, no, 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 sir. That is absolutely not true. That was where we were sitting on the back of the car when we were unloading the stuff. We were sitting on the back of the car. There is no, uh uh-uh. uh. No, sir. Mm uh. There's plenty in the garage, though. But there was nothing in the garage. There was plenty of times that everybody worked in the garage. Had nothing to do with. Not everybody. Gannon's not working in the garage and bleeding all over the place. There was, sir. There was nothing about bleeding all over the place in the garage that had to do with anything. I'm telling you, what you're asking me is completely, totally different than anything has to do. Do you know what this looks? Like? Say you're telling me the truth again. Please don't think. Please don't care what I think. Say you're telling me the truth right now. That Saturday had nothing to do with him disappearing and being gone for over a month. Do you know what that looks like for you? It looks like I'm in the middle of a situation that I need help getting out of. But, But you're not willing to tell me how to help you. From the interview alone, it's not clear what she wrote as the agent never read it out loud. But she kept saying that Gannon's injuries had nothing to do with his disappearance. It was clear that someone supposedly dangerous had kidnapped Gannon, but she wouldn't tell him who. She used every excuse in the book to not tell the agent what happened. Basically, she wants the agent to help her, but the fact that he is even curious about some of the evidence against her makes her not trust him. She wants him to not believe any of the evidence that points to her, which is completely unreasonable. Even if some of the evidence is explainable, any investigator is going to move in the direction that the evidence is leading them. At least an hour of the interrogation is mostly Letitia arguing with Agent Grusing and eventually the district attorney for a little bit over why she can't tell them who took Gaynon. She finally agreed to move to a different interview room that didn't have recording capabilities so she could talk to the agent privately. 
While they waited to get that set up, she said she had been communicating with another FBI agent named Barbara. I've never seen, and not to say it hasn't happened, someone take a kid and not ask for ransom mm-hmm. and the kid be okay. No, I did. I sent him to the FBI those messages that you guys had on my phone. Yes. Did you, did you get those? I think you sent it to the FBI. I, whatever that email address is, I think it's that Barbara or something. I, I want to tell you what the name is. I think it's Barbara, so like. Barbara from the FBI. Yeah, she has a 720 number, and I feel like her name Barbara. Hmm. And my friend Amy has been talking to her a lot. Are you sure she's from the FBI? Our numbers are all 303. No, this is a 720 number. She's not FBI. Her name's Barbara. Wow. I, I can tell you the number. It's in the other phone, but yeah, it's Barbara something, and 720 is the first three digits. Yeah. Well, she's not working this case, because I would know. Yeah. I'm the FBI agent for Right. This. Yeah, I know. This is, this How did you get in touch with Barbara? My friend Amy, she called my friend Amy with, like, asking questions because I guess originally people wanted to know if, like, that came with me or something. And uh, my friend Amy gave me the information, which was a, I think it was a 720 number. And anything I found, like the Snapchat, I sent over to this lady. Like, to, to whatever this number was, I sent to it. It never made it to us. So you, there's no one named Barbara. No, no we have a we have Barbara. a Barbara. There's Barbara Kelleher, but she's not. She doesn't even work these sort of crimes. Yeah, no, this is totally a Barbara. And this is seven two zero number, and if I had the other phone, I can tell you exactly what the number was. When did you send this to her? This would have been like okay. So then this happened three days ago, um, and then it happened February fifth, I think. <laughs> So what happened was, I got all the messages when I logged back in for my iCloud. I got all the messages that were, like, just sitting there. And so I took that message and I forwarded it to, like, I sent it to people and I sent it to Albert. And I said, hey, I said, can you get someone to, like, look into this? I said, it could be just people, you know, sending random messages or it could be creepers, you know, like people whatever being stupid or it could be just in general you know um the actual person and so no one ever said anything to me about it then i get the snapchat okay so that let me me interrupt you for a second Mm -hmm. let's see there's an 11 year old kid again we have to go back there 11 year old kid injuries in the house now we know that taken and you don't come to law enforcement? For this was this was a law enforcement but person. No, there's I've no been Barbara. I mean, how did you get in from, except through your friend? You had Amber said, from the FBI. Right, but she said that she worked with the FBI and she was going to send information. She said that she worked with Amber. I swear to you, if you call Amy, you can get the number from her to find out what, what Barbara, who, who the Barbara lady was. And she was actually emailing her today. But, but if you told them back then, and you trusted them with that information, this is why. Why, I, no, why are you not today? When, when because I'm, no one has helped. I tried since February fifth. The fifth. Today's March, 
that's why you see I had such a problem with trust. Is because I, I was there when you were talking to Amber, though. That was your chance. And to Amber. Yeah, that's the right. legit FBI. So then, is that what happened when I was talking to Amber? I got a message back from the attorney who said not to talk to you guys because you guys a weren't lead agency or something like that, and then b not to say anything else unless he was present. That was when I was trying to talk to Amber. But why wasn't that with Barbara then? Because I gave it to my friend Amy, who was, had this relationship with Barbara, like trying but, to check on her. See, like, uh, and I've again, this sounds like a lot of your calls. Mm-hmm. To where you're you're pointing fingers in different directions, but never giving specific things. It's the most convoluted bunch of BS. She keeps saying she tried to get help and couldn't, but her attorney told her not to talk to the FBI. Supposedly, Gannon has been kidnapped, and Letitia knows who took him. But instead of doing anything she can to get him back, she's claiming she can't help because she needs protection for herself first. To the point that she's willing to be charged with his murder. It doesn't make sense. Her interrogation reminded me a lot of Brian David Mitchell's interrogation. In case you're unfamiliar, Brian David Mitchell and his wife Wanda Barzi abducted 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart and made her his second wife in some sort of religious act. During his interrogation, he continually cited scripture in order to deflect the questions he was being asked. Letitia used the story of needing protection from someone as a way to deflect every question. Eventually, they moved into a non-recorded room, and it seems she told Agent Grusing that someone named Angel took Gannon during one of their trips to Petco. Angel's nephew was friends with Gannon, and the story seemed to turn into Gannon being picked up by Angel to go play with her nephew. Again, the story just kind of loosely morphs in whatever way helps the story make sense. The agent questioned Letitia why the surveillance videos from the Petco didn't show anybody taking him. And here's what it's going to look like, is that you were the last one with Gannon. Nothing on this angel thing, we, can, or we, we can't authenticate any of that. When you say it's all off camera, like with the Black and Paul in the parking lot, we have cameras for that whole place and we don't see you moving okay. anything. Well, can, can you like show me that so that I can show you where, what direction? But... You would know where it is. Where did I you I said what direction, because I'm not, like, I'm not from Colorado. So I can show you, like, on camera, the video that you're talking about, what direction. Like, where it would be at, then maybe you could pull, like, if you wanted to pull a camera off of another place. I mean, because there's lots of places you could pull the camera off of. That's all I'm asking for. I mean, that's, that's offering help. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
there's a very specific reason she wants to see the video in order to explain exactly what happened. She wants to see what she has to work with in order to make sure her lie adds up. She can point to areas off camera and say the event happened there. At this point, she doesn't know exactly what the camera covers, so she needs to see it in order to make sure she's pointing to an area not covered. That same thing happened during Jodi Arias' interrogation. She murdered her ex-boyfriend, Travis Alexander, in 2008. She begged to see the crime scene photos because the detective was telling her her story didn't match. She wanted to see the crime scene so she could adjust her story accordingly. The last hour and a half of the interview went nowhere, and if Letitia were telling the truth, she allowed herself to be charged with murder instead of giving investigators information that would help find Gannon. Two days after the arrest, Letitia was transported across the country to face justice for what everyone now knew she had done. Investigators believed that Letitia violently murdered Gannon on the afternoon of Monday, January 27, 2020, but the path to murder started much earlier. Al was set to be deployed with the National Guard from the 25th to the 28th of January. The deployment meant Letitia would be home alone with her 17-year-old daughter Harley, her 11-year-old stepson Gannon, and her 8-year-old stepdaughter Lena, a situation which was relatively frequent given Al's recent deployment schedule. On January 26th, Letitia took Gannon and Lena for a hike to the Garden of the Gods. Harley was meant to join in on the hike, but she was called into work at the last minute. Everything was going well until Gannon said he had a stomach ache. He was unable to make it to the bathroom in time and soiled himself as they walked. The incident cut the hike short and Letitia took the kids home so Gannon could rest. By the evening, his condition hadn't improved and he was up most of that night feeling unwell. Letitia communicated Gannon's condition to Al via text message. At nine minutes past midnight, she went online and searched, My son burned the carpet, how do I fix it? Then she also searched, will humidifier help if exposed to smoke, and smoke from fire will humidifier help. It would later come to light that there had been an incident whereby some carpet in the family living room was burned. An hour later, Letitia searched, Colorado law for kids staying at home, and son is sick but I have to go to work. In the early morning hours, she contacted Gannon's school and told them he would be absent. Then she texted Al to say she was going to give her boss an excuse to get out of work so she could stay home with Gannon. At 4.30 a.m., she texted her boss to say her stepfather had been killed in a car accident and she wouldn't be coming into work that day. Seems a little dramatic. As we know, Gannon and Letitia spent much of the middle of that day driving from their home to the Petco store and back in Al's Nissan Frontier. Investigators believe that the murder took place after the pair arrived home that afternoon, but before Elena came home from school. Given the amount of blood found in Gannon's bedroom, it's most likely that his murder took place in his own bed, a place every child should feel safe. After killing her stepson, Letitia bundled his body up into trash bags, put the bags into a suitcase, and put the suitcase into a cardboard box which she loaded into the back of the Volkswagen Tiguan. Then she set in motion her plan to make it appear as though Gannon had run away from home. Remember the photos found on Letitia's phone that she had taken of Gannon sleeping? 
Well, investigators believe she took the images with one purpose, so she could return the bedroom to its original appearance after she had carried out her to-do list that day. You know, murder stepson, clean up room, report him missing, and then carry on with life as if nothing had happened. Photos taken by officers after the disappearance showed the bed laid out in almost exactly the same way it appeared in the photos from Letitia's phone. But there were some significant differences that stood out when they looked closer. The sheets were the same, but the blanket and pillowcases were different. The bed was also not pushed up against the wall like it normally would be, which explained how blood was able to pool into the corner of the room. Al would later say it was very unusual for the bed not to be positioned directly against the wall. The original blanket and pillowcases seen in the iPhone photos have never been recovered despite five further searches of the house. Letitia cleaned the bedroom from top to bottom, scrubbed the carpets, changed the sheets, recreated the bedroom from her photos, and attempted to eliminate any trace of blood from the hallway and her vehicle. Then, she called 911. It was a bold move to invite officers into her home while the body of her victim was just feet away in the trunk of her vehicle, but as she predicted, the officers didn't look too closely during the initial stages. The day after the murder, Letitia put the next stage of her plan into action. She parked the Tiguan containing Gannon's body in the airport lot, rented a Kia, and picked up Al. It's clear that renting a vehicle indicated Letitia was taking evasive action to hide what she had done. A closer look at her Volkswagen Tiguan indicated no mechanical failures or any reason why it couldn't have been used to pick up Al from the airport. Unless, of course, his son's body was in the trunk. She knew that the second Al touched down, he would pull their whole home apart to try to find his son, so the Tiguan needed to be out of sight and out of mind until she had time to get rid of the body. On her way to the airport that morning, Letitia texted Harley to tell her to park her car in the garage. It's likely she had seen the dark spots on the floor of the garage and wanted Harley's vehicle to conceal them during the search she knew would be coming at some point. On the evening of January 28th, while Al frantically attempted to find his son, Letitia left the family home and met Harley at a nearby motel where she intended to stay the night. She then drove her rental Kia to the airport to pick up her Tiguan from the airport's parking lot. At around 8.30pm, she left the parking lot for a journey officials believe she took to dispose of Gannon's remains. CCTV footage captured her vehicle at various points along the drive and the GPS data gave a general location in the area to the north of Palmer Lake, but it was not specific enough to determine an exact location where she might have gotten rid of Gannon's body. Letitia then drove back to the airport, swapped back into the rental Kia, and drove home with no explanation for her whereabouts. The next morning, when she was meant to be at the station being interviewed, she returned to the Kia and collected her Tiguan. Then she drove the vehicle to a car wash and attempted to remove all traces of her movements over the previous two days. When officials got wind that Letitia had rented a second vehicle on January 31st, they requested the GPS records from that car as well. Just like the coordinates from the Tiguan, the vehicle had traveled to an area north of Palmer Lake, 47 miles or 75 kilometers away. It had then backtracked, lingered in a spot, and then potentially left the main road. Just like with the Tiguan, the GPS data was intermittent and nonspecific. 
Investigators believe that Letitia rented that vehicle to move Gannon's remains from where she had originally dumped them. They theorized she had taken his body out of state entirely because she could feel the net closing in and had decided the original location wasn't well hidden enough. As it turned out, she and her daughter Harley had driven a rented van from Colorado Springs to Northeast Florida. She stayed in a hotel in Pace, Florida, which will become a very important location a month and a half later. Letitia's arrest, five weeks after Gannon went missing, was cold comfort to Al, Landon, and everyone who had so desperately hoped for his safe return. They had his murderer, but they had no explanation as to what had happened or why he had been killed. Letitia is undoubtedly a pathological liar, so there was little hope she would explain what she had done or indicate where she had dumped Gannon's body. When Gannon's parents made a statement after the arrest, there were no more pleas for a safe return. Instead, they begged for information so they could give their little boy a proper burial. Really, I'm not in the correct mindset to be even standing up here, but if I had to say one thing, that... When he said Gannon is no longer with us, I'd have to say Gannon is with us. After the stories of people from all over the world, he's not only my hero now, he's the world's hero. So I think the community, the positive support from a state that I've never visited other than two or three times, I'm astounded by the amount of love that's not come from me. It's came from my boy. And never thought I'd be standing here. It's a nightmare. I've had to put trust in the people I don't know. Today, I got the worst news and the best news. Obviously, we know what the worst news is, but the best news is, is that justice will be served, and I'll make sure that justice is served because my boy did not deserve any of this that has happened to him. So I urge media one more time just to hold off on questions until we know that this person, the stepmom that I even trusted, that she will pay 100% for this heinous thing she done. And I know that that's going to be do, will be done. So I ask you guys, I beg and plead, if, you, if you've known or if you see this story, all of you have seen this story, please hold that very close to you. Because I want to live this earth knowing that justice was served for my boy. And I know that you've seen pictures, you've seen stories, you've seen my little man. He is truly my hero. And I'm gladly giving that to you guys too, that he can be your hero. I've heard stories of people that have not prayed in years, that have finally fell on their knees to pray. And I know where my son's at, without a shadow of a doubt. So many families have been brought closer together because of this. I know my boy is special and I've told my people and my family <clears throat> and friends, that Gannon has a testimony, that Gannon has a story, he's special, and this is his story. So make that story magnificent, who my child is, and I'm putting my trust into you guys to do that. So thank you for allowing Gannon to be your hero and sharing him with us. Al's statement reflected the immense guilt he carried for enabling a monster to have access to his child. He said, quote, I'd been looking forward to his teenage years and the fun we had ahead of us as he became a young man. 
In a moment, on March 2nd, 2020, my heart stopped again. My little boy is not coming home. We will never play Nintendo again. No more Taco Tuesdays. No more smooth-looking haircuts. No more Big Bubba for my Lena, and no more G-Man for the world. The person who committed this heinous, horrible crime is one that I gave more to anybody else on this planet, and it is a burden that I will carry with me for a very long time. Seven days after Leticia's arrest, she made her first appearance in Colorado before a judge and was formally charged with first-degree murder. But the path to the courthouse had been plagued with as much spectacle as the case up until that point. During the process of being extradited from South Carolina to Colorado, Leticia had attempted to make a getaway. She slipped her handcuffs and attacked a female deputy with a can of Monster Energy drink while also attempting to take the officer's firearm. The timing of the appearance in court couldn't have been more poetic. Later that afternoon, Al filed for divorce. It seemed like the only thing the family had to look forward to in this case was for Letitia to be found guilty of murder. But six days after that appearance on March 16, 2020, they received simultaneously earth-shattering and hopeful news. It was just after 9 a.m. when a Florida Department of Transportation road crew made a grisly discovery. They were inspecting a bridge just off Highway 90 in Pace, near the Escambia River Bridge, which lies to the north of Pensacola. The river beneath flows directly into the Gulf of Mexico. Underneath a long bridge, they found a brownish suitcase, but that wasn't initially what drew their attention. It was the pungent smell emanating from the area. A brave soul on the crew stepped forward to take a closer look, and when he pulled back the corner of the suitcase, he learned what every true crime enthusiast knows. An abandoned suitcase on the side of a highway never brings good news. When he realized the contents of the suitcase were human remains, he called 911 and the area was cordoned off by Florida law enforcement. The area where the suitcase was discovered was rocky and sloping, which made it impossible to bury anything. Whoever had left it there hadn't taken much effort to conceal it, and it was only out of sight of the road because it was concealed behind some bushes and slightly under the bridge. On the opposite side of the highway to where the suitcase was found was a small verge between the rocky terrain and the bridge. Investigators assumed it was likely where the person responsible had parked, with the intention of tossing the suitcase over the side of the bridge in the hopes the river would carry it away never to be seen again. That theory provided another potential clue. Whoever had dumped the body was unfamiliar with the area because they had likely assumed the river ran up to the edge of the bridge. When the person had lugged the dead weight out of their vehicle, they realized the river was far below the level they wanted. That forced them to make do and hide the suitcase behind some rocks and bushes. After the initial scene investigation was complete, the body was removed from the site and taken for autopsy. Within 48 hours, the remains were identified as belonging to 11-year-old Gannon Stauk. He was found more than 1,400 miles or 2,250 kilometers from his home and nearly two months after he went missing. Gannon's entire body was decomposed and some of his bones were showing through his skin. He was found wearing the clothes he had died in. After the formal identification, further charges were added to Letitia's rap sheet. Those included murder in the first degree after deliberation, or, in other words, premeditated murder. 
There were also eight additional counts of crime of violence for the alleged use of a firearm, a blunt instrument, a knife or sharp object, and for causing the death of Gannon. The additional charges indicated to the public what investigators had believed all along. Gannon had been brutally and violently murdered in his own bed. Despite the level of decomposition, the medical examiner was able to determine Gannon had suffered 18 sharp force injuries, four blunt force injuries, and one bullet wound. His manner of death was ruled a homicide. A toxicology report indicated the presence of hydrocodone in Gannon's body, which was later determined to have been prescribed for Al for a hand injury. Investigators believe Letitia administered it to Gannon at some point during the day in order to sedate him and affect his ability to fight back. There was no doubt Gannon's murder was bloody, brutal, and drawn out. The blood in his room is a testament to that brutality. It took nearly a year for the pre-hearings regarding Letitia's charges to get underway. By then, she was also facing additional charges for attempting to escape from the El Paso jail. What happened next could be considered a reflection of a legal system that appears to put the needs of the accused over the rights of victims to get justice. There's no doubt that the legal system has caused significant pain to both accused and victims over the years and has resulted in countless wrongful convictions. However, this case demonstrates what happens when the pendulum swings too far in the opposite direction. Despite Letitia's lawyers arguing that she was not fit to face trial, two independent psychiatric evaluations found her competent. But before any proceedings could begin, Letitia made a somewhat surprising request. She told the judge she had decided to dismiss her public defenders and represent herself at trial. Seeing as she had been found mentally competent in two separate assessments, the judge granted her request. She was also provided with an extension to organize her defense. But Letitia is undoubtedly the queen of delays, and right before the time extension was set to expire, she reversed her decision to represent herself and hired new attorneys. That led to a further delay to enable her lawyers to prepare yet another defense strategy. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Six months later, on November 4th, 2021, Letitia pleaded not guilty to all of the charges against her. Three months later, on February 11th, Letitia was successful in having her not guilty plea changed to not guilty by reason of insanity. Six months after that decision was made, Judge Werner announced that a sanity examination found Letitia to be sane at the time she allegedly murdered Gannon. Her lawyers immediately appealed the ruling and requested a second examination be conducted. 
the judge granted the request and conceded to another delay in the proceedings. Two months later, the judge finally confirmed the trial would start on March 20, 2023, more than three years after Gannon's murder. It finally looked like Gannon's family were going to get their day in court and the justice they were entitled to under the law. But less than two weeks before the March start date had arrived, the district attorney notified Judge Werner that the second sanity report had not yet been filed by Letitia's lawyers. That was a critical aspect of the proceedings because, if Letitia was found to be sane at the time of the murder by a second assessment, her not guilty by reason of insanity plea wouldn't stand. And yet, her attorney said the report wasn't ready yet, but they promised the judge it would be completed in time for the trial to start. On March 20th, jury selection got underway. Two weeks later, the prosecution and the defense gave their opening statements. The state declared that Letitia's attempts to cover up the murder and hamper the investigation proved she knew right from wrong and her plea of not guilty by reason of insanity was just a ploy to get away with murder. However, the defense opened with their intention to claim she had suffered a major psychotic crack during the brutal killing which made her not culpable for her actions. Basically, it was now confirmed that Letitia had in fact murdered Gannon, and everything she said from that point on was complete and utter bullshit. She sat in an interview room being outraged and offended that anyone would claim she hurt Gannon, saying she would never harm that child, when in fact she stabbed, beat, and shot him in his own bed. Al Stauk was the first witness to take the stand in the murder trial against his ex-wife. Al spoke about his son's character and described him as a loving, enthusiastic, and brave child who had started to show more interest in sports and outdoor activities shortly before his death. He shared stories about Gannon's developing personality, his struggles, and his achievements. And then he spoke about his relationship with Letitia. He told the court that at first Letitia sounded like a great mother and someone who would be there for his kids as if they were her own. When they first got together, Letitia was a teacher. Remember how during her first police interview she told the detective she had given up teaching to become a flight attendant? Well, Al told the court that in 2016 she was fired from her job and her teacher's certificate was suspended after she was found to have engaged in unprofessional conduct and willfully neglecting her duties. Al then spoke about the events leading up to Gannon's disappearance, including the family's typical routine and interactions he had with Letitia and Gannon while he was away from home. He expressed his initial trust in Letitia's claims that Gannon had disappeared, but his rapidly growing concern and suspicion when he noticed inconsistencies in her stories. In the wake of the murder, he had also recalled how Letitia had told him that Gannon was out to get her. After one of his deployments, Al returned home and heard from Letitia that Gannon had threatened her with a knife. That was just one incident in a disturbing string of events which led Al to believe Letitia was manipulating their relationship. She also made up two false burglary claims and told him that a squatter had gotten into their home even though there was no evidence of anyone having been there. Al told the court that it took a long time for her to admit that many of the stories she told him were, in her own words, not accurate. When Al was asked about Letitia's claims that she was insane at the time of the murder, he stated, quote, I believe she is and was absolutely sane from the time I met her to even today. 
When Al's testimony was over, the prosecution called a string of witnesses, all of whom seemed to have no trouble believing she was capable of such a horrific crime. One of the most heart-wrenching aspects of Al's testimony came when he expressed his grief and the emotional toll of Gannon's death on him and his family. He spoke about the pain of losing a child and the difficulty of coming to terms with the fact that someone he had trusted and allowed into his home was responsible for Gannon's murder. He said, quote, One of the things about Gannon, he absolutely loved his mom and had some of that same love for Letitia. He was a mama's boy. I think he had love in his heart for her. I don't think he was afraid of her. He told the court about the last interaction he had with his son before he left, saying, quote, Something I would always tell the kids when I had to leave or when they would go back to their mom's house was like, you're always going to be in my heart and I'm always going to be in your heart and I'll see you when I get back. And he said, okay, daddy, I love you and I'm going to finish watching Pokemon. I remember it like it was yesterday. When Al's time on the stand was complete, a former neighbor of the couple testified that Letitia had tried to pay her to tell the police she had seen someone take Gannon on the day he went missing. Letitia's half-brother also testified he had watched her put the suitcase in the van on February 1st, 2020. He said he didn't feel right about the suitcase, and when he saw that it had been found in Florida, he knew she had done it. In the early stages of the investigation, Letitia's daughter Harley refused to give a statement, and because she was a minor at the time, Letitia was able to control how and when investigators spoke to her. But by the time the trial rolled around, Harley was an adult, and the space she had from her mother in the intervening years had changed her perspective on the whole situation. Harley took the stand and spoke about her relationship with Gannon and Lena and how they were like siblings to her. Then she was asked about her mother's relationship with Gannon. What about your mom's relationship with Gannon um, over the years? Uh, can you start out perhaps when Albert and your mom got married? How was that relationship between Gannon and your mom? Yeah, so um, it was different at first because we were like a blended family. Um, so we were just getting used to, you know, more people in our life. Um, they had an, like an okay relationship. There were problems here and there, but. Um, was there a point in time when Albert and your mom first got married where Albert didn't have custody of the kids? Yes. Uh, and were things a little easier when the kids weren't around? Um, I wouldn't say easier. Having to go back and forth between, you know, the weekends and everything with them were difficult because, you know, Albert, of course, wanted his kids full time with him. So I just remember there being like a lot of problems with that. But At some point, did Albert get custody of both Lena and Gannon? Yes. And were they living with you all more of a full time basis? Yes. And did you observe the relationship between everyone at that time? Yes. Uh, did it seem to be, uh, for lack of a better term, a normal family situation? Yes. Okay. The lawyer asked Harley questions about her teenage years and the early stages of Al and Letitia's marriage. When the couple were first married, Al only had partial custody of Gannon and Lena. He would see them on weekends, but not every weekend due to his deployments with the National Guard. 
Harley also revealed they moved house frequently, multiple times within South Carolina, then Alaska, and finally to Colorado Springs. But most of the moves were initiated by Letitia, although Harley wasn't sure of the exact reasons her mother wanted to move so frequently. Despite the instability, when the family moved to their home in Colorado Springs in January of 2019, Harley finally felt like they were a real family again. Al got full custody of Gannon and Lena, and their new life began. But almost immediately, the cracks in Letitia and Al's relationship became crevasses. Had you had an opportunity to see Albert and your mom together on numerous occasions? Yes. What was their relationship like? And I'm talking about when you're in Colorado, 2019 on. It started to feel like we were family again. Because everybody was there and like we were together. Did they ever argue? Yes. Uh, how often would they argue? Often. And how do you know they were arguing? Because you could hear them arguing. And what would you do when that would happen? Um, Anna and Arlena would come ask me why they were arguing. So like they would just come to my room and I would turn the TV up or something. Because I didn't want them to have to listen to them argue. Did you ever get pulled into these arguments? Yes. Tell the jury about that. Um, they would be arguing about something, and then it would be like, well, isn't this true? Or like, ask my opinion, try to get my say-so on it. And who would ask your opinion to get your say-so? My mom. Did you ever ask your mom, say, why do you pull me into these arguments to get my opinion? Yeah, I just said, like, I don't want to be a part of this. And what did she say in response to that? But just keep asking and then they keep arguing. Little did she know how short-lived the apparent fairy tale life would be. Just one year after moving to Colorado Springs for a new start, her stepbrother Gannon was dead. She went on to say that looking back, she realized how her mother abused, gaslit, and manipulated her. During a tearful moment of testimony, Harley gave a shocking insight into the extent of the lies her mother had told her. Harley's father had died during the early years of Al and Letitia's marriage. Letitia told Harley that her father's house had been broken into and he had been killed by the intruders. Just a week before the trial began in Gannon's murder, she found out that her father had in fact died from an overdose. Letitia had also told Harley that she had cancer and that she was going to take her own life right after they finished dinner one night. Mr. Tony asked you about a hospitalization at some point. Do you recall that question? Yes. You initially said that you thought that your mom was in the hospital because she had cancer. You remember yes. Cancer? Yes. Who told you that your mom had cancer? Um, I remember her saying she had ovarian cancer when we lived in Charleston. Who said that? My mom. And was that, was she telling you that? Because why? Why would, why would she tell you that? I don't know. Were you asking what the heck you're doing in the hospital? Yeah. And her answer was, I have ovarian cancer? Yeah, I remember. You ever bring up ovarian cancer again with you? No. Mr. Cellini asked you questions about uh, suicides and your mom talking about suicide. Do you recall those questions? Yes. 
uh, he asked you on two different events, right? Yes. Do you remember one of those events being in Alaska? Yes. Tell the jury about that. How did that come up? What was said? What was the circumstances around what was said? Yeah, so I remember I was in my room, um, and she was like, come eat. That's your last dinner with me. And I was like, what do you mean? And then um, she was like, it's already too late. Like, I took them. And then I was just like, what? And I remember crying, and I was like, what do you mean? And then um, we went and had dinner, and then it was never talked about again. And was this at a time when she was telling you that she didn't want to be in Alaska? She had nothing to do with Alaska, wanted to move from Alaska? Yes. What do you think about what she said to you now? What do you mean? Was that a form of manipulation, as you indicated earlier? Yes. Had you ever seen her try to hurt herself? No. And the other time she talked about suicide, was this related to the hospitalization that she said she was in for ovarian cancer? Um, yes. Did you consider that to be a form of manipulation? Yes. Harley stated she had no knowledge of the murder, but believed that her mother was absolutely capable of such brutality. She also denied any involvement in the murder or the cleanup, which was the claim put forward by the defense. Of course, because Letitia's method of trying to get away with murder was always to push blame onto someone else. Agent John Grusing shared the evidence of Letitia's search history, which was taken from her iPhone. She had googled, I don't like my stepson, and blood spurting from arterial bleed. A second witness added several more concerning search terms, including hiding IP address, need a fake ID legit, face transplants, plastic surgery, what do they do when they find a body in another state, how do they identify bodies found in another state, Spanish girl names, how long before a body starts to decompose in a bag, and how do people avoid the FBI. Subtle. They also showed details of searches Letitia had made in the days before the murder many of which indicated her marriage was far from happy and her role as stepmother caused her constant frustration. Find real military singles. Find a new husband. Sent my husband sexual messages and he ignored them. Find a guy without kids. My husband's ex-wife does nothing for her kids. And find me a rich guy who wants me to take care of his kids. The day after Gannon went missing, Letitia also searched, Can Nintendo Find My Switch? It turns out Switches don't have any kind of GPS or tracking abilities. Investigators believe Letitia dumped the Nintendo separately from Gannon's body. It has never been recovered. They also spoke about the extent of the search efforts to find Gannon. In the first month after he went missing, authorities logged nearly 9,000 hours of searching as they looked through nearby bodies of water and walked miles through deep snow in North El Paso County and Southern Douglas County. Investigators also spoke about Letitia's claim that she was sexually assaulted during her first formal interview about Gannon's disappearance. They shared how when they looked at her record, they found she had made at least one prior sexual assault report which was later found to be false. The court was also played a recording Letitia uploaded to her Facebook page in the weeks after the murder. 
The audio was timestamped the night before the murder, and while it's only a minute and a half long, it clearly demonstrates that the dynamic between Letitia and Gannon was anything but motherly and caring. In the clip, Gannon can be heard crying over the incident which resulted in a burn to the carpet as well as to himself. Gannon, I promise this is the last time I'm going to ask you. I'm just freaked out, okay? Are you sure you didn't do it on purpose? He did it. Okay, you promise. He promised. Pinky promise. Pinky. Okay. All right. So listen, listen. We're, all right. I'm, we're gonna have to sell stuff to fix it. Okay. So okay. we figure out what we gotta sell. We can sell the sofa. We can sell whatever. Cause we gotta get it fixed. So, lady, don't be mad at us and kick us out of the house. Okay. <coughs> you got it. Instead of Letitia consoling him or even trying to find out what happened, she guilts him by saying they need to sell things from the house to pay for the repairs to the carpet. Right at the end of the clip, you can hear him saying he's worried about his burn and it's clear he's in pain. It's unclear why Letitia recorded the clip in the first place, especially when a child in her care is in such distress. But also, what did she think she was going to prove by posting the recording to her Facebook page after Gannon went missing? At the time, she was posting obsessively on various social media sites, but these weren't appeals to find Gannon. They were all declarations of innocence and even explanations as to what had happened to Gannon. The court was also shown that during the time between Letitia leaving Colorado and being arrested in South Carolina, she paid for an online polygraph. Except the site she used was called fakepolygraph.com. The service enables customers to provide their own questions and answers, which will then be collated into a report. Letitia's questions included, Did you participate in any way in causing harm to your stepson? Did your stepson return with you to your home? And did you participate in any way in causing the death of your stepson? At the time Letitia ordered that report, Gannon's body had not been found. It appears as though she intended to provide the results to law enforcement to prove she was not involved in Gannon's murder. Ironically, the website refused to send Letitia her report because it had been blocked. The content of the questions made them suspect she was linked to illegal activities. Yeah, no shit. I can only assume that the intended purpose of fakepolygraph.com is so cheaters can try to prove to their significant others that they aren't actually cheaters and the company is not willing to risk being involved in any serious criminal behavior. When it came time for experts to take the stand, they reiterated that there was no indication Letitia had a mental health condition that would explain or excuse her actions. There was no indication she had bipolar disorder or dissociative disorder, which appeared to be Letitia's only defense. Dissociative disorder, or DID, was previously known as multiple personality disorder. As the name suggests, it is a complex psychological condition that is characterized by the presence of two or more distinct personalities within a single person. These identities may have their own names, ages, histories, and characteristics. DID is often a result of severe trauma during early childhood, such as extreme physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. People with DID may experience gaps in memory regarding everyday events, personal information, and traumatic incidents. 
It was clear Letitia's defense team were going to argue that her actions were influenced by one of her alternate identities, rather than her primary identity. That would suggest that Letitia was not in control of her actions and therefore shouldn't be culpable of what one of her alternate identities did. A forensic psychologist who took to the stand for the prosecution testified that her professional opinion was that Letitia was lying about having DID. She said, quote, All of it seems a bit far-fetched. Detectives went on to testify that they believe Letitia murdered Gannon, hid his body in her car, then moved her vehicle multiple times to avoid detection. When she realized the cops were taking a closer look at her, she dumped his body to the north of Palmer Lake. But the pressure from detectives intensified over the coming days, so she got a second rental car to move the body. Eventually, she dumped it off the bridge in Florida in the hopes the river would sweep his remains out into the Gulf of Mexico. With that final disturbing picture painted in the jury's minds, the prosecution rested after more than a month of testimony. At that point, the case seemed clear-cut. Letitia was not only a murderer, she was a liar, an abuser, and a manipulator. And then the defense began. Their tactic was to lean heavily into representing Letitia as a woman with deep mental health issues who was clearly insane and therefore not responsible for her actions in murdering Gannon. And yet, they were only able to find one expert to back up that argument. The specialist was controversial psychiatrist Dorothy Otnow Lewis. Dorothy has carved a name for herself in a very specific niche of forensic psychiatry, the intersection of mental health and criminal culpability. By delving deep into the psyches of violent criminals, she attempts to provide some understanding of the causes behind some of the most violent crimes which humans carry out against each other. What makes her so controversial is her focus on dissociative identity disorder. Critics argue that her theories sometimes dangerously blur the lines between explaining and excusing criminal actions. She is often criticized for offering a too sympathetic view of individuals who are guilty of heinous crimes. That's exactly what happened with Letitia. The court was shown footage of Dorothy's psychiatric assessment of the accused. After the clip was played, Dorothy testified that her professional opinion was that Letitia's alter personality, Maria, was responsible for Gannon's murder. She said, quote, Somebody had said when she was younger, she asked to be called Maria. That in and of itself is not a proof of anything, but it is a confirmation if you have a lot of other things that go along with it. I can't be certain what was going on in her head. I don't know why she had a gun in her hand or why she shot Gannon. It is not clear that she simply wanted to kill. This is a child she loved. If we want to believe what other people said, she loved Gannon. Dorothy continued that Maria was unable to tell the difference between right and wrong and that Letitia was wildly psychotic at the time of the murder. Um, despite that, are you able to come with an expert opinion regarding her sanity at the time of the death of Gannon? Yes. What is your opinion? Well, I, I think that she was, uh, that assuming that this area is about, is about the time that Gannon was killed. Yes. She was psychotic at the time. Uh, she was, uh, not in touch with reality and um, and she did not, I don't think she knew the difference between right and wrong. I don't know whether she even 
knew what she was doing. When it came time for Dorothy's cross-examination, she appeared unable to answer the simplest of questions about what the definition of insanity is under the state law of Colorado. The prosecution were making it clear that without that knowledge, there was no legal foundation to Dorothy's determination that Letitia was psychotic at the time of the murder. Oh, uh, I believe that you must, uh, I'm, uh, you must know the, uh, the nature of what you have done and that it was wrong. And uh, that uh, also I think that you do add on a, um, a bit of the Durham decision, which has to do with uh, if you cannot control the, uh, your behaviors such as to comply with the requisites of law, I believe that that is also part of an insanity defense here. Did you look at the statute regarding insanity for the state of Colorado prior to rendering an opinions in this case? I did, but I would have to look at it again to look at it. And I've also discussed it with others, which is why I added the, uh, the Durham decision and the ability to conform your behavior. Because to my mind, in many, in many courts where I've testified, that is no longer accepted. But it's, it was my understanding from the attorney that that is also an, an aspect of insanity, the inability to conform your behavior to what is required by law. Is that the aspect that you use in rendering your opinions in this case? That is only one of the aspects. Well, tell us the elements. This is what you're here for. You're here to testify that this defendant was sane at the time she committed this crime. I'd like you to explain to the jury now what law you used in rendering that opinion. If you, if, would you permit me to read it? And I will tell you what aspects of it I you're the expert, concentrated doctor. on. I... Uh, by and large, I used the uh, McNaughton definition of whether the person knew the nature of what he or she was doing and that it was wrong. And uh, so that was my, uh, you know, that was my orientation. And then I was pleased to learn from the attorneys that also the uh, inability to conform one's behavior to the requirements of law was also part of the uh, definition in Colorado. I, the accuracy of that, I don't know, but we have discussed it. And I've said that I was surprised. I was unaware that in the other states, that since, since the Reagan shooting, I had thought that most of that was not any longer recognized. But I was told by the attorneys that that was one of the other factors that played a role. As you sit here right now, do you know the legal definition of insanity in the state of Colorado? If you would show me the, uh, you know, show me as it is written out, I will tell you whether this is what I used. I can't say it to you verbatim, but the idea has to do with whether you knew the nature of what you were doing and that it was wrong. To be very clear, the legal definition of insanity in a court of law is not the same as in the practice of mental health. 
In order to be not responsible for a crime, the defendant has to meet a very specific guideline that is not the same as just being diagnosed with a mental illness. To most people, a serial killer is insane, but that doesn't mean they are not responsible for their crimes. The prosecution went on to explain that this doctor produced a report for all of the other cases where she testified for a defendant, where she explained what the legal grounds for an insanity defense were in that state and explained why the defendant met those guidelines. She did not do that in this case. She just made the broad claim that Letitia was insane at the time of the murder and didn't specify why or how she met the state guideline for an insanity defense. The prosecution also alleged Dorothy Lewis did not conduct a thorough examination and only found Letitia insane for a paycheck. The defense fired back that it had been one of the most highly respected psychiatrists in the country as its expert and that it was insulting to insinuate she'd only found the defendant insane for a paycheck. But the defense surely must have felt there wasn't much strength to their case because they only provided one other witness, clinical psychologist Dr. Rhonda Niederhauser. Rhonda testified that she had seen Letitia as a patient just one month prior to the murder. She diagnosed Letitia with generalized anxiety disorder after being told she was getting harassed at work because she stood up for a colleague who was being bullied. Dr. Niederhauser said she provided a letter to give to the school district recommending that Letitia step down from the job. She also recommended medication and therapy. Under cross-examination, the psychologist stated that Letitia didn't appear to be suffering from a severe mental health illness, her memory and judgment were not impaired, her speech was normal and her tone was appropriate. Basically, there was nothing to indicate she had suffered a psychotic break which would excuse her actions in murdering a child. After the two experts completed their testimony, the defense rested its case. Letitia did not testify. During closing arguments, the defense twisted the narrative to imply that Letitia's odd behavior after the murder was a clear indication that she was insane. They said, quote, It makes no sense for someone who has pre-planned, for whatever reason, whatever motive to brutally kill Gannon, to then report him missing right away, and then in a matter of three days later, go into the police station with a completely illogical, incoherent story. It is not the actions of a sane, rational person. The one thing they cannot answer, because there is no answer, is motive. Motive about how you can go from this picture, on a hike up at Garden of the Gods, loving, kind, to less than 24 hours later, brutal rage. 18 stab wounds, 4 blunt force trauma, shot. This wasn't a pre-planned, calculated killing for some gain. This was a psychotic break fueled by rage and attacking a demon from the past. But the prosecution had an answer for that claim. They said, quote, We don't have to prove motive, but yet we did anyway. She has one stepson and she hated him. She was planning to leave Al Stauk, move back to the East Coast. She wanted to hurt Al. She wanted to hurt Landon for that matter. She did to the core. They will never recover from what she did to them. There are people who are truly legally insane. They don't act like that. If they don't have the capacity to know right from wrong, then they're not going to hide a body. They're going to act like nothing happened. They also don't lie because there's no reason to lie because they don't think it's wrong. After two months of trial, the jury retired for deliberations on a cold Friday morning. 
By midday the following Monday, they had reached a consensus. Letitia was found guilty of all charges, including first-degree murder after deliberation, first-degree murder, victim under 12, or in a position of trust, tampering with a deceased body, and tampering with physical evidence. Letitia showed no reaction or emotion as the verdicts were read to the court. During Letitia's sentencing hearing, Alan Landon gave emotional victim impact statements. Al said, quote, Gannon was born severely premature and barely fit into my two hands the first time I held him. At the end of his life, after his body was cremated and turned into ashes, he was no bigger than that first time I held him. The murderer of which I speak was not always such. When I met Tisha, she was beautiful, extremely intelligent as many have testified to, and a seemingly successful woman. A far cry from the nappy-headed, murderous, narcissistic, and arrogantly flippant human being that sits in our midst today. Having a background in teaching, social work, higher education, certified babysitting, and endless amount of credentials, that should render one trustworthy when it relates to the safety of children. However, although, the although she remains too much a coward to state the facts of what she did to Gannon, too much a lily-livered, self-centered, pathological liar to ask for forgiveness, and too much the facade of one who actually cares for others to have taken her frustration out on an adult or one who could defend themselves, she will one day give an account through her words or through her time. Sending pictures of Gannon sleeping to Landon and I was telling, as the boy looked pale and absent of the energies that so defined him, this is what a happy, healthy little boy looks like when he sleeps in the next picture. That's what a little boy sleeping looks like. These pictures on the screen are of a happy, healthy little boy that's sleeping sweetly, healthily where he lay. The impact Tisha had as a result of this heinous crime stretches far wider and far deeper than I could depict through my statement today. Two other people torn to pieces as a result of this are Gannon's sister, Lena, and Harley. Speaking of Harley, I feel as though as I've lost two children as a result of this tragedy one of which I will never see on this earth again, and the other which I do not know if a relationship can be salvaged with. Now for Lena. The video you saw as, as submitted in evidence, her bebopping down the street is actually an excellent depiction of Lena and her happiness and her joy in life. She is very loving, trusting, and at times way too social. Normally you might be concerned by your little girl talking to the utility guy working in the front yard, but in this case, it was the inside of her own home that was of grave concern. Nonetheless, her loss, Lena's loss, is like none I can even imagine. She lost her big brother, her only brother at the time. I still do not know if she has fully processed or fully understands the gravity of the situation, but regardless has pressed forward and is thriving as best as she can. I am so proud of her. And these are her words. Once again, they're in yellow, so I'll do the best I can. And this is what I asked her if she wanted to say anything to teach, and this is what she said in her sweetest mind that she has. That you do do that you do not do that to people, especially your stepkids, and that it is never all right to do these things. How sweeter of a response can you get? Letitia was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murder. She was also sentenced to 12 years in prison and three years parole for tampering with a deceased human body, and 18 months for tampering with physical evidence. All sentences were ordered to be served consecutively. 
the guilty verdict and life sentences were far from the end of heartache for Gannon's family. In the wake of the trial, a disturbing reality came to light. In July of 2023, it was discovered that a YouTuber with 90,000 subscribers was selling Gannon's autopsy photos online. The photos were posted to Patreon, and with a one-time payment of just $3, anyone could view the images of the murdered and decomposed 11-year-old boy. The images were taken more than a month after he was killed. When the story about the autopsy photos being publicly available for purchase came out, the YouTuber posted a statement to her account defending her actions. She said, quote, I want to address what's going on right now with the Gannon Autopsy Coroner video I created. Unfortunately, this seems to be something where people are very divided on how they feel about it and I'm hearing a lot from both sides. The reality of the situation is that different people feel differently about this. Some people genuinely think making a video including autopsy photos is bad and I respect their opinion and feelings. Other people, like myself, think of autopsy photos and the coroner discussing slash explaining them as interesting and informative and are able to view all in a more scientific, detached way. It's just one of those things where it depends on the person. I am not adamantly against taking down the video if people are truly unhappy with it, and I will absolutely consider doing that. But right now it seems there are a lot of other people who are acting in bad faith and creating lies for fun and excitement in order to pit others against me. I understand some of you have issues with me charging money on my Patreon for the video. If I was charging money for the autopsy files alone or something like that, I think I'd see your point. But in this case, I spent a lot of time and worked hard putting together a video lining up the coroner's audio and descriptions along with the appropriate part of the photo she is describing and editing it together to try to make it as informative as possible for the viewer. That is what I am charging for, which I would hope you can agree is understandable. The response fell flat for viewers. Three days later, the creator posted a three-minute apology video where she claimed she never intended to hurt anyone by providing access to the photos. She also stated that as a result of the backlash, her Patreon account had been shut down. The woman went on to claim that she had donated the money she received for the photos to a charity which helps abuse children. Initially, it was unclear how the YouTuber gained access to the photos in the first place. She claimed she was sent them through a records request for the case files and that she didn't ask for the autopsy photos specifically. Further investigation revealed the Colorado Judicial Department had released the photos due to an official request and the fact that no motion for suppression had been filed by the attorneys in the case. A Colorado statute which protects the release of records that identify a child who is the victim or religious victim of sexual exploitation crimes doesn't extend to cover child victims of first-degree murder. Far be it from me to criticize the innate curiosity of human nature. Naturally, I'm aware that lots of people enjoy watching true crime content and learning about the psychology behind monsters and their actions. In every case that I share, I attempt to honor the victims and share their stories with the respect and dignity they deserve. The district attorney commented, quote, Gannon deserved so much more in life from his stepmother, and he certainly deserves dignity and respect in death, and there's nothing about what this YouTuber is doing that provides any dignity or respect to Gannon. 
Gannon's father, Al, was interviewed about the photos, and he stated that the idea of pictures of his dead child being shared and paid for was re-traumatizing and evil. He said, quote, I am just emotionally and psychologically and financially maxed out from the last three-plus years of this process. To take legal action, I just don't know if I have that in me. He called for charges to be brought against the YouTuber, but to date, they have not been charged with any crime. Likely because they didn't commit any. Despite Al being understandably upset about the situation, what that YouTuber did is technically not illegal. I can say from experience that I have requested files regarding criminal cases from law enforcement or courts for my show, and I have received crime scene and autopsy photos of deceased children. I have never included that in any of my requests, and I was surprised that they were included in both cases. Generally, if I have any pictures or video that shows a deceased person of any age, I blur them out in an attempt to not violate any of YouTube's guidelines and out of respect to the deceased. In August of 2020, prior to her murder trial, Letitia wrote a letter to the judge claiming to have been the victim of poor treatment while incarcerated. She wrote, quote, over 15-plus times I have been abused in transport, ranging from injured ribs, not on my head, several ankle-plus wrist bleeding, bruising on my knee in my cell, loss of feeling in my hands several times. I've had to be on Insure two weeks due to the poison comments, and I just recently on 8-11-2020, I received threats in my peanut butter because I provided evidence of not only my innocence, but evidence that will show who it was through my PI. As a result of this, I assume their runners use people in trusted positions in jail to send me threats in my food, and I'm terrified of what will happen next. Throughout the entire case, Letitia had no shortage of complaints about how she was the victim. She was supposedly sexually assaulted. She claimed the investigators abused her and refused to let her talk to a lawyer, and now she was being abused in jail. Sure. In May of 2023, it was revealed that Letitia had taken out a $25,000 life insurance policy on Gannon, three years before she murdered him. The day she was arrested for murder, she had applied for Harley to become the sole beneficiary of the policy. The insurance money was later ordered to be split between Landon and Al. Al has since remarried a woman he's met during the time between his son's murder and his ex-wife's trial. The couple have one son together. Gannon Stouk's case confirms the horrifying truth that some monsters live in the bright light of day and in the souls of those entrusted to care and protect. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. 
if you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.